So good morning, everybody. I uh, wanted to have a chance to welcome all of you here to this wonderful conference. My name is Ephraim Radner. I teach theology here, uh, but although I'll be involved uh, uh, briefly in a panel, um, my uh, role right now is simply to welcome you warmly to Wycliffe College and uh, also to give thanks to uh, uh, Professor Paul Allen, who is the organizer and will be saying a few words in a moment uh, for all the work he's done, as well as to some of our other uh, folks who have helped here, Maddie and Josh and others uh, putting this together. Um, just a couple of words before we begin. Um, you have coffee in the back. I hope you saw that, and you're welcome to that, obviously. You'll hear more about the schedule in a moment. Uh, in terms of washrooms, uh, they are available here at Wycliffe. Um, they're, they're quite adequate, but they're not obvious, and that's sort of an oxymoron when it comes to washrooms. But let me just tell you, um, if you go back to where you came in, uh, to Wycliffe in the front, uh, there's a stairway right downstairs, and those are where the sort of more extensive washrooms are located. So go back to the front entrance and go down the stairs and just follow the signs. There's also a single washroom if you go back to the front and turn right down the hallway. You'll see it marked. Uh, and finally, there is another one, which is a little harder to find, down the stairs right here through the bookstore and uh, to your right. But they're all available, obviously, as you need them. Um, are there any other special sort of uh, logistic things that people need to know about? If not, let's begin with a prayer, and then uh, Professor Allen will uh, introduce us to this uh, day's work. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're deeply grateful for the chance to gather and to consider these important matters of uh, human nature and uh, evolution and their interrelationship and our thinking and our decision-making. We ask your blessing upon those who will be speaking, that you would guide them uh, in all truth and in all humility and uh, to the presentation of your own being in a way that uh, can bring glory to you. We ask your blessing upon all of us who listen and who learn that through your spirit you might guide us uh, in what you would have us learn and hear this day. We pray all these things uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Ephraim. Uh, so as uh, Dr. Radner mentioned, uh, my name is Paul Allen, and uh, I am a theologian at uh, Concordia University in, in Montreal. And uh, it's a, a privilege to be uh, here with you uh, today. Uh, so the, the rationale or reason for my involvement uh, in this uh, symposium, um, I'll speak a little bit about, uh, really just a little bit, for a few minutes after uh, lunch. Um, I want to uh, say, first of all, a very warm thank you to Wycliffe College for hosting this uh, symposium. You know, the early Greek uh, symposia were known essentially for being drinking parties. Um, and so while there will not be that level of frivolity today, I do foresee a certain convivium. And convivium being a, a Latin term that is roughly equivalent to the Greek word symposia. Meaning a coming together of minds that are alike in terms of their being shared interest and value. And yet 
minds that differ in certain respects. So the theme of our symposium today, Creatures of God, Theological Anthropology in the Context of Evolution, a Catholic Evangelical Dialogue, is one of great importance to various church uh, traditions. And we've singled out uh, two of them, specifically the Catholic and the broadly evangelical uh, traditions. And so the focus is on the theme uh, therein of sin and uh, human creaturehood. Um, so the, the differences, uh, apart from the similarities of shared value and interest, the differences um, is of theological strategy, of theological priority, perhaps. Evangelicals and Catholics, as well as other Christian traditions, think of human creaturehood with some significant distinctions. Where this becomes important, I think, is to resolve to some extent um, you know, in light of the cultural shift occasioned by the advances in the biological theory of evolution, this is, this is a challenge for Christians of various traditions to come and strategize, to think together. So today we'll explore how theological strategies can be more coherent in the context of one, scientifically forceful understanding of nature, namely the theory of evolution, which touches very deeply on human nature. But I don't think we need to be overly simplistic, certainly not pessimistic, in our sense of what evolution implies or on what it might impose on believers. Yes, the debates interminable, arguably dull and rancorous over the meaning of the Genesis text and its coherence with Darwin's theory of evolution, this is all very well known. What is perhaps less well known are the new advances, especially in theoretical biology, which promise to place Darwin's theory in an even more majestic, if I may use that word, a more majestic context of understanding. Primatologists such as Franz de Waal and the well-known entomologist E.O. Wilson have made precise and strong arguments for thinking of the significance of cooperation in animal species, overturning, perhaps, a view of exclusive competition that is fed by the narratives of meaninglessness adopted by various atheist apologists for evolution. Another example, paleontologist Simon Conway Morris has made a fascinating case for thinking through the mathematical order of evolutionary processes, and he has hypothesized a set limit of morphological types within which evolution, according to him, must be, needs to be constrained. So, in other words, evolution is not so random uh, a process after all. All of which is to say that evolution is not the monolithic theory, even on the friendliest of readings that some people of faith might take it to be. What then are the opportunities that exist for a creative as opposed to a defensive reading of evolution or of our own tradition in the face of evolution? 
in order to come up with and to reformulate a faithful understanding of human nature. So that's by way of setting up the background a little bit. And today we are privileged to have among us a wealth of persons whose teaching and scholarly experience in this area is at the cutting edge of Christian reappraisals of especially the scientific, but also the philosophical, and indeed the theological insights that can help us attain a more adequate view of human nature a view of human nature that is more adequate to the needs of the 21st century church, the 21st century academy, and our 21st century world. So this morning as you came in, uh, I hope that you both that you picked up both a, a copy of the schedule for today. We're running just a few minutes behind, but that's, uh, that won't be a, a problem. Um, we will be uh, having uh, breaks both after the first lecture and then after an afternoon panel presentation uh, for which there will be uh, drinks and uh, at least uh, one of them with some snacks. There will also be lunch that is provided with the symposium today. This symposium would not be possible without the support uh, through, through my grant, but from the, uh, it is from, through the Biologos Foundation. And you have, I hope, uh, picked up a brochure that, uh, that tells you a little bit about BioLogos. I will say a few more words about that um, after, just briefly after uh, lunch. The BioLogos Foundation received a uh, large grant from the John Templeton Foundation um, in 2012, uh, specifically to run programming uh, for uh, the Christian church, uh, particularly the evangelical churches uh, globally, um, with most of the, uh, the grants uh, obtained by academics in North America and in Europe. Okay, well, I'll say a little bit more about that later. Let us not uh, delay and move on to the first of our two lectures of this symposium, uh, the symposium will be bookended by uh, two lectures, the first of which will come uh, this morning from Dr. Gerald McKinney, who comes to us from the University of Notre Dame. And Dr. McKinney's lecture will be entitled Bio, uh, Biotechnology, pardon me, Biotechnology, Evolution, and the Normative Status of Human Nature. Uh, as you can see from Dr. McKinney's brief uh, biography in the schedule, he is Walter Professor of Theology at the University of Notre Dame and teaches and writes in theological ethics, biomedical ethics, and the ethics of biotechnology. I won't read or go over the entire uh, uh, summary there, but you see that uh, he is coming out with a new book uh, this coming year, Darwin in the 21st Century, Nature, Humanity, and God. So we'll begin with our lecture from... Kenny, after which we'll have some time uh, for questions and discussion. I turn over the, uh, the lectern now to Dr. McKinney. Welcome to Toronto. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Allen, for that uh, generous introduction, and thank you to all of you for being here. Um, I, uh, my, my voice is, <coughs> I hope, um, uh, is, is clear to everyone. It's, I've been uh, fighting competitions for two weeks. Um, so my voice isn't quite normal, but I think I'll be able to get through this. Um, is this working? 
Okay, so people can hear. Great. In the time allotted to me, I want to consider a normative implication of the acceptance of evolutionary biology into our conception of created order. The question I ask is this. If we concede that human biological nature, as it now is, has evolved through evolutionary processes operating over many eons, do we have any principled grounds for opposing the intentional alteration of human biological nature through biotechnology? Christians have traditionally claimed that the world as God created it is good, and that its goodness consists at least in part in its order, which is also the ground of human moral action. The point is not just that God created the world, but that the world God created exhibits order. And that order is both essential to the notion of the world as God's creation and the standard of human moral action. Created order was traditionally conceived as both generic and teleological, that is, as consisting in both kinds and ends. Until recently, the claim that the living world is ordered in these ways was thought to be incompatible with evolutionary biology, especially in the form it took in the wake of the modern evolutionary synthesis. But in recent years, neo-Aristotelian theories have made a partial comeback in the philosophy of biology, while others have found ways to talk about creation without either lying on or dismissing Darwinian talking about uh, created order without either relying on or dismissing Darwinian evolution, is Oliver O'Donovan, a prominent evangelical theologian, who has demonstrated how a broadly Platonistic, uh, Platonist Augustinian conception of created order, grounded in Genesis 1, can accommodate cosmological and evolutionary accounts of how things that are ordered in that way came into existence. Gene Porter, a prominent Catholic theologian, has demonstrated how an Aristotelian Thomist conception of the natural world as ordered by formal and final causes can accommodate an evolutionary account of how the things that are so ordered came about. Of course, O'Donovan does not speak for all evangelicals or Porter for all Catholics, but their respective achievements demonstrate that evangelicals and Catholics may maintain their most characteristic claims about created order in their most robust forms without denying evolutionary biology. My interest is therefore not in whether evangelicals and Catholics can accept evolutionary biology without relinquishing their most fundamental claims about creation. O'Donovan and Porter have demonstrated that they can. Rather, my interest is in, in whether acceptance of evolutionary biology as compatible with created order commits them to accepting the permissibility of biotechnological alteration of nature, including human nature. If the change in variation in human functions and traits that are due to evolutionary processes is compatible with the normative conception of order, then wouldn't the change in variation introduced by biotechnology also be compatible with it? This is the question I want to pose. We can sharpen this question by turning for a moment to the position of James Peterson of McMaster University. Peterson argues that Genesis 1 depicts a divine creative act that occurs over time and enlists creaturely agencies in its work. Such a view, he thinks, is consistent with what we know 
from evolutionary biology and other sciences, namely that the world is constant, the natural world is constantly changing, and that creatures, especially humans, are significant agents of that change. As Peterson puts it, quote, God sovereignly chooses to create over time and has designed us and our world to do the same, end quote. It follows for him that, quote, the present state of nature cannot tell us what it will be or, more importantly, what it should be, end quote. On these grounds, Peterson denies that normative status atta attaches to the order of the natural world as it now is. One more quote, even if one could clearly discern a natural order, why consider that a pure expression of God's will? End quote. In sum, for Peterson, our knowledge that nature, including human nature, is constantly changing due to evolutionary and environmental processes, as well as human activity, supports the notion that God intends to include creaturely agency in the divine work of creation and to carry out that work over time. Biotechnological alteration of human nature is, for Peterson, one way in which humans participate in God's creative act. Now I can put my question this way. Can one accept, as Peterson does, the claim that nature as it now is, including human nature, is the product of evolutionary, environmental, and anthropogenic causes without endorsing, in principle, biotechnological alteration of human nature? In my view, the strongest grounds for an affirmative answer to that question are to be found in O'Donovan's Platonist Augustinian conception of created order and Porter's Aristotelian Thomist one. However, I'm going to argue that their positions fail to rule out biotechnological alteration of human nature, which must be opposed on other grounds. Oliver O'Donovan. Like most evangelicals, O'Donovan derives his notion of creation from scripture with a characteristic emphasis on the creation narratives of Genesis 1 and 2. The first biblical creation narrative, as you all know, pronounces creation to be both good, Genesis 1.31, God saw everything he had made and indeed it was very good, and complete, Genesis 2.1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished in all their multitude. It seems plausible to argue on these grounds that respect for creation as God's work requires us to leave it as it is. If it is both finished and good, what could justify an action that intends to alter it? O'Donovan is justifiably cited as a proponent of this view. That which most distinguishes the concept of creation, he asserts, is that it is complete. And he goes on to argue that human action must respect creation as complete. But in what sense is creation a complete or finished work? O'Donovan does not argue that creation is finished in the sense that it is inert or unchanging, nor is it finished in the sense that created things were brought into existence by an instantaneous divine act. When O'Donovan refers to creation as a finished act of God, he means that whatever processes have brought created things about, these things constitute an ordered whole. It is this order that explains what has come about in time and not vice versa. In O'Donovan's words, creation as a completed design 
is presupposed by any movement in time. O'Donovan therefore denies that we can arrive at a, at a conception of creation by Donovan, to say that the world is an ordered whole is to say that it consists in generic and teleological relations. Drawing in part on Genesis 1 and 2, he argues that created things belong to kinds, as, for example, individual human beings belong to the human kind, and are ordered to ends, as, for example, vegetables are ordered to humans and other animals for food. These relations are highly complex. The vegetables that are teleologically ordered to, humans for or to animals for food are generically ordered to one another as vegetables, just as humans who exist in generic equality with one another are teleologically ordered to God. Now, how is created order so understood related to scientific knowledge of the world? For O'Donovan, biological knowledge ignores the obvious ordering of vegetables to humans and non-human an human and non-human animals for food in order to focus on previously unnoticed generic orderings, such as the one in which hum uh, animals and vegetables alike are subject to genetic and evolutionary processes. Similarly, science and technology may ignore the obvious ordering of vegetables to discover previously unknown orderings, uh, the ordering of vegetables to humans for medicine, for example. In both cases, the relevant knowledge is attained only by methodologically abstracting from the generic and teleological orders in which vegetables stand and treating them as if they were ordered only by natural causes, such as those of genetics and evolution. This procedure is perfectly legitimate, O'Donovan thinks, but problems arise when science and technology assume that the kinds and ends discovered by science and invented by technology are the only kinds and ends there are, so that created order appears as the product of scientific and technological ingenuity. Order in this case is what the human mind and will impose on the world, and this assumption is what worries O'Donovan most. The fundamental question for him is whether generic and teleological relations are the finished work of God, as Genesis 2.1 suggests, or are merely imposed on the world by us. In his words, 
We must understand creation not merely as the raw material out of which the world as we know it is composed, but as the order and coherence in which it is composed. And the fundamental decision faced by the human agent is the decision between realism and nominalism, whether to regard this order and coherence as real or as merely imposed by the human mind and will, and thus available to be reordered at will. This sharp distinction between creation as an order that demands respect and as raw material available to the human will to form corresponds to a broadly Aristotelian distinction between two kinds of action, namely acting properly understood, which respects generic and teleological orders as created by God, and making, which views created things as unformed material available for human fashioning. It should now be clear how O'Donovan is able to affirm that creation is a finished work of God, which human action must respect as such, while also accommodating cosmological and evolutionary accounts of the temporal origins of created things and scientific accounts of their nature. I now want to consider some implications of his position. Recall that for O'Donovan, it is created order that explains the existence and nature of things that come into existence through cosmological, evolutionary, and historical processes, and not vice versa. That any things have come into existence through these temporal processes, and that they exist in the orders in which they do, is explained by God's creative act, and not by those processes, which presuppose rather than explain the order God has created. O'Donovan accepts that humans, vegetables, and the institution of marriage all came into existence through temporal processes, and all may pass out of existence. But what they are, their nature, is determined by the generic and teleological orders in which they exist. What this means is that the things that are ordered are temporal and do not share the unchanging and finished character of the orders in which they exist. Moreover, the generic and teleological relations in which things exist are intrinsic to those things. For O'Donovan, things like humans and vegetables are what they are, less by virtue of forms and ends that inhere in those things than by virtue of their generic and teleological relations to things other than themselves. He is a Platonist or a Stoic more than he is an Aristotelian. These points are important because they allow O'Donovan to accommodate temporal processes such as evolution while maintaining the unchanging and finished character of creation, which he thinks Genesis 1-2 requires. However, these same points appear to accommodate technological alterations of things so long as these alterations fall under the heading of acting, which respects kinds and ends as they are, and not making, which assumes kinds and ends may be imposed by our will. For example, vegetables are ordered to humans and other animals for food and to alter the properties of vegetables so that they are more adequate to that purpose would seem to be not only consistent with respect for the teleological order in which they exist, but expressive of that respect. On the same grounds, it would seem to be possible to alter human functions and traits, at least to some degree, 
without altering the generic ordering of humans to one another or their teleological ordering to God. So long as such alterations could be understood as presupposing the generic order in which humans exist, just as evolutionary processes presuppose that generic order, they would not appear to violate created order. In fact, however, O'Donovan argues against this implication in the case of humans, but I want to show how his argument is questionable. In the context of reproductive technology, O'Donovan famously distinguishes begetting children from making them. And the distinction draws directly on features of the generic ordering of humans to one another. What we beget is like us and equal to us. What we make is unlike us and at our disposal. Making other humans therefore violates the generic relation to other, uh, to, uh, of humans to one another as human. O'Donovan does not say which interventions turn procreation into making, but he implies that any intervention that is not therapeutic would count as making. If so, any act in, aimed at enhancing biological functions and traits would be considered making and would be a violation of the generic order in which uh, parents and children exist as human beings. This is almost certainly O'Donovan's position, but the matter is not so simple. O'Donovan stresses that in any situation of choice, created order is present in a multiplicity of generic and teleological orders. We can easily identify several generic and teleological relations that are present in procreation in addition to the generic relation in which parents and and children exist as fellow human beings. Although qua human, parents and children are related to one another generically, but not teleologically, parent and child are themselves generic orders, and there are complex teleological relations between them. For example, children are under the authority of their parents, but parenthood is for the sake of the child's good, and so on. Right action requires discerning how these different relations are ordered. Would an act in which parents attempt to form their child count as a violation of her generic identity as a human being, in which she exists as her parents' equal and does not exist for their purpose? Or alternatively, would such an act count as as an instance of the ordering of parenthood to the child's good? Surely this question arises frequently in the context of parental intervention into their growing child's environment. Why then should it not also arise in the context of intervention into the child's biological nature? In short, why should we not assume, uh, why should we assume that only the generic relation of parents to children as fellow human beings counts in the case of altering biological nature, and not also their generic and teleological relations as parents and children, and the responsibility, which is inherent in this relation, of parents to benefit their children. If on these grounds, um, consideration, uh, consideration of these complex relations in which parenthood exists, uh, the distinction between making, making and begetting collapses, we are left with the possibility of alterations of human nature that presuppose the generic order of humans in the same way evolutionary and other processes do. So I conclude by 
stating that O'Donovan is not able to exclude the intentional alterations of human beings, and he is not able to do so because they can be understood in the same terms as uh, the change that is due to evolutionary, um, to evolutionary biology. I turn now to Gene Porter. In many debates over biological enhancement, normative status is claimed for human nature as the ground of human goods or rights. From a Christian perspective, the connection of goods and rights with human nature as created by God is attractive because it both supports the claim that creation is good, our creaturely nature is ordered to our flourishing and not merely indifferent or hostile to it, and it provides an intelligible ground for goods and rights. The latter are not merely inventions, but are related to our nature as God created it. There are various ways to formulate these points, but the most characteristic ways are broadly Aristotelian. They hold that when we speak of the nature of something, we refer to the characteristic or set of characteristics that make it what it is, its essence, while its good consists in its fulfillment as the kind of thing it is. The challenge that biotechnology poses for this Aristotelian kind of position is obvious. If human goods and rights are grounded in human nature, it seems reasonable to suppose that at least some goods and rights are dependent on preserving or respecting human functions and traits as they are in their present form, and to worry that biotechnological alteration of these functions and traits will undermine these goods and rights. However, the claim that biotechnological alteration of functions and traits imperils nature-dependent goods and rights must meet three objections. The first objection holds that there is no stable human nature for biotechnology to interrupt. Like all products of evolutionary and environmental processes, human functions and traits have always been in flux, and the change and variation introduced by biotechnology is no different in principle from that which is due to nature itself. The second objection holds that even if it is possible to arrive at a plausible concept of a stable human nature, any such concept must accommodate the considerable change and variation in human functions and traits which we actually observe. But if human goods and rights are not threatened by the change and variation in human functions and traits which we observe, change and variation that's due to evolutionary and environmental factors, as well as unintentional human activity, then there is no reason to worry that these goods or rights will be threatened by the variation and change that biotechnology introduces. Nature-dependent goods and rights already accommodate a lot of change and variation in nature. Why should we worry that they will not be able to accommodate a little more? The third objection is a somewhat different one. It holds that normative status properly attaches to the goods and rights themselves and not to the human nature on which they allegedly depend, so that it is justifiable in principle to alter human nature to protect or promote those goods and rights. If the goods or rights themselves that make a, uh, it is the goods and rights themselves that make a claim on us, not human nature. We are obligated, according to this objection, to promote and protect these goods and rights. And there is nothing ethically at stake in the process that we may end up altering human functions and traits in the course of doing that. 
So let's begin with the first objection, that there is no stable human nature for biotechnology to interrupt. One interesting trend, uh, contemporary trend in the philosophy of biology, is the resurgence of Aristotelianism. In the case of human nature, Aristotelian theories classically held that human nature is defined by a characteristic, or more plausibly, a set of characteristics, which all humans, and at least in their distinctively human versions, only humans share. The Darwinian discovery that species are evolved products of contingent evolutionary processes is often thought to have invalidated the notion of unchanging essences shared by all humans and only humans. However, drawing on the work of recent Aristotelian philosophies of biology, Catholic moral theologian Jean Porter has argued that our concepts of species amount to more than mere generalizations about their diverse individual members and do not share the contingency of the process that, processes that have produced species. Even in a post-Darwinian context, she argues, we can explain traits or behaviors of an organism only if we know what kind of organism it is and can understand its traits or behaviors as characteristic of its kind. In Aristotelian terms, such explanations involve formal causes. Similarly, we can explain the development of organisms and debate whether a disputed member is one of them or not, only by appealing to the notion of a fully formed or paradigmatic member of their kind, to which less developed organisms or organisms that exhibit anomalous traits may uh, approximate in varying degrees. In Aristotelian terms, such explanations involve final causes. What interests me is that Porter's conception of formal and final causes succeeds in combining metaphysical realism with change and variation. Her formal and final causes are real, not merely nominal. They are not mere constructs, but explain actual traits and behaviors of organisms as characteristics of kinds. At the same time, these causes are indeterminate in an important sense. For Porter, the defining characteristics of a species are neither necessary nor sufficient conditions for membership in that species. That is, membership of an individual organism in a species is neither forfeited for lack of any single characteristic nor guaranteed by possession of any single characteristic. A defense of Porter and her fellow neo-Aristotelians is well beyond my scope, but she has at least demonstrated that an Aristotelian Thomist conception of created order remains fully intelligible in a post-Darwinian world. However, Porter's success in showing how a stable human nature to which enduring human goods and rights attach is at least compatible with the change and variation in human functions and traits that result from evolutionary and environmental processes raises a question which brings us to the second objection. If human nature is stable enough to support enduring goods and rights in spite of the change and variation nature have introduced, why wouldn't it be stable enough to support these goods and rights in spite of the biotechnological alteration of human functions and traits. The grounds on which Porter accommodates evolutionary and environmental change and variation appear to accommodate biotechnological change and variation as well. 
If human nature is already changing and variable, and that without threat to nature-dependent goods and rights, then why should we worry that the change and variation introduced by biotechnology will threaten those goods and rights? The answer is that we need not worry because the natural characteristics on which the relevant goods and rights depend need not be rigidly fixed or invariable in order to support those goods and rights. The very point of Porter's formal and final causes is to show that in spite of its variability, human nature is sufficiently uniform to support the ascription of the same goods and rights to every human being. Of course, the accommodation of biotechnological alteration is not unlimited. At some point, quantitative differences in, say, cognitive or emotional functioning, or qualitative differences such as the elimination of a range of emotional responses, or entirely new cognitive functions, all of which are promised by uh, proponents of biotechnology, could be great enough that the behaviors of the altered and unaltered would be best explained by referring them to distinct formal causes, and thus to distinct species. Nevertheless, it is safe to assume that the change and variation accommodated by Porter's forms is wide enough to encompass the bio biotechnological alterations that currently appear to be realistically achievable. Biotechnological alteration of human nature would have to go to rather extreme lengths to justify the worry that nature-dependent human goods and rights are imperiled by biotechnological alteration of human functions and traits. While it is plausible to hold that there is a stable human nature, it is not plausible to hold that biotechnology, at least in the foreseeable future, will disrupt it. We are now ready to consider the third objection, which holds that even if human goods or rights are dependent on human nature, normative status properly attaches to those goods and rights, and not to the human nature on which, at least for now, they depend, so that it is justifiable in principle to alter human nature if doing so would facilitate the protection or promotion of those goods or rights. Let us concede that certain goods, rights, are indeed dependent on human nature. Prior to any ability to alter our biological nature, we would have reason to be satisfied with these goods, even if we could imagine more attractive ones. But if we achieve the ability to alter our biological nature, it may no longer be necessary for us to rest satisfied with goods that are dependent on our unaltered nature. We may instead have the option of beginning to remake our nature in accordance with goods like much higher levels of cognitive ability, expanded perceptual capacities, a richer, more subtle range of emotions, or greatly increased physical strength or agility, goods which, even if we recognize them as good for creatures with our nature, are unavailable to us in the current state of our nature. Under these circumstances, the defenders of the goods that are dependent on our unaltered nature will no longer be able to commend these goods to us simply on the grounds that they fulfill our nature or are more consonant with it than their alternatives are. Instead, they will have to decide whether normative status properly attaches to human nature in its current state, or to the goods which at present may be dependent on our nature as it is, but which in their fullest versions may require the alteration of functions and traits. 
Are these goods goods because they are human, or are they good because they are good? If the former is the case, that is, nature-dependent goods are goods because they are human, then an account of why normative status attaches to human nature as such, and not simply as the ground of human goods, is needed. If the latter is the case, so that it is the goods themselves and not their connection with human nature in its current state that we should value, then it appears that human nature poses no ethical barrier to promoting those goods, that is, to realizing them in their fullest versions. Faced with this choice, bioethicists are overwhelmingly in favor of attributing normative status to the goods themselves rather than to the human nature on which they depend. In making normative evaluations, the argument goes, we can and should consider goods in abstraction from human nature and inquire whether human nature in its present form is adequate to them. And it is in principle justifiable to alter human functions and traits in order to make them more amenable to the good as we conceive it. This view, however, implies that our nature as it is is not adequate to the goods God intends for us. And that calls into question the goodness of creation and its completeness. So this is a problematic position, I think, for a Christian to hold. Nevertheless, there are two responses that are um, both plausible and have both been made by Christians who want to oppose biomedical or biotechnological enhancement. The first response argues that even if we concede that the goods biotechnology promises are worthy of choice and even superior to those our nature and our current state allows us to enjoy, it would be foolish to attempt to alter our nature in pursuit of these goods. The second response argues that the goods available to us in the present state of our biological nature are more choice-worthy than whatever goods we stand to gain by altering or bypassing our nature. The most sophisticated version of the first response, that even if these are superior goods, we should not pursue them, it would be unwise to do so, appeals to evolutionary biology, arguing that the alteration of human biological nature could upset the finely tuned relationship between human nature and the human good that is the result of the workings of evolutionary processes over many eons. Gordon Graham nicely articulates this concern, and um, I think it's worth quoting him at length here. The human genome, if human evolutionary biology is to be believed, is the outcome of many millions of years of selection and adaptation. This process has made the existing genome hugely well adapted to the human condition, the circumstances in which humans must not merely survive, but thrive. Now, the ambition of refashioning this genome more effectively must rest on the supposition that the accumulated results of a little less than 200 years of biological science will enable us to do better than indefinitely many years of evolution had, have done. What possible reason could we have to think this? To illustrate Graham's point, consider a plausible future scenario in which stem cell technology is capable of rebuilding vital organs such as hearts, lungs, livers, and kidneys so that deaths due to the failure of these uh, organs are averted, yet progress in slowing or reversing neurodegenerative conditions such as Alzheimer's disease lags behind. People now live much longer 
but the added years only prolong their state of cognitive decline. Those such as Graham who appeal to this argument from evolutionary biology would not be surprised that it is difficult to calibrate our biotechnological advances in a way that benefits the whole organism. After all, the proportionality of the good of the human organism to its nature, for all its imperfection, took shape over many eons. It is foolish to think that we, with our limited knowledge and in such a short time, can improve on this record with a few alterations here and a few there. This response sounds plausible, but it is based on a misunderstanding of biological evolution. As anyone who has lived past the optimum age of reproduction might attest, evolutionary processes select for reproductive fitness, not for overall human well-being. Moreover, nearly the whole of human evolution occurred when humans lived under conditions that bear little resemblance to the conditions humans live under today. In short, evolutionary theory offers us no reason to accept the results of evolutionary processes as an ideal or even a tolerable state of affairs so far as the human good as a whole is concerned. To be sure, natural selection has conferred on us a high degree of adaptability to our physical environment, so evolutionary biology counsels us to exercise caution in altering functions and traits in accordance with our judgments about the good. And it is not clear that we have learned enough in 200 years to be confident that our intentional interventions will indeed promote and not threaten our overall good. But over its many eons, bio, uh, biological evolution has operated without any concern for our overall good, so we have no reason to assume that it is a more reliable means to the latter than biotechnology will be. This first response then, which holds that even if the goods dependent on an unaltered nature are superior, we would be unwise to pursue them, this response thus fails, rests on a, a, a misunderstanding of evolutionary biology. The only alternative that remains on this view of created order is the second response, which denies that the goods that biotechnological alteration of nature uh, make available to us are superior to the goods that are accessible to us in our nature as it now is. Even if biotechnology makes alternative goods available to us, this response asserts, we should reject them as inferior to the goods that are dependent on our biological nature as it is. Leon Cass, Martha Nussbaum, and others have offered versions of this argument, claiming that the vulnerabilities and limitations of our nature in its present state are the source of goods that are richer and deeper than those we stand to gain by altering our nature. However, this argument takes us into bioethics and is beyond the scope of this paper. So I conclude by briefly stating where this paper has brought us. The strongest arguments against biotechnological alteration of human nature appeal to a created order. If creation is both good and complete, or if our creaturely nature is ordered to our flourishing, then alteration of our nature appears to violate the created order. However, we have seen that created order is compatible with evolutionary, environmental, and anthropogenic changes to human nature. And if so, we've found that it is also compatible on the same grounds with at least a significant degree of biotechnological change. So if biotechnological alteration of human nature is to be opposed, it must be on grounds other than its alleged incompatibility 
with created order. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. McKenney, for that uh, incredibly rich presentation on, uh, on the theme of biotechnology evolution and a Christian understanding of human nature. So we have, uh, we have a good amount of time uh, for some questions and discussion. Uh, and do feel free to ask uh, questions of clarification uh, in, in order to... Uh, uh, to sort of lead up to what it is that you want to uh, to get at, and uh, and so Dr. McKinney will take uh, take the questions. Terry, which which mic are we using uh, right now? Is it the the mic at the lectern? Oh, is Terry? Yeah. Sorry, Terry. Is it? Are we using this mic or? Oh, okay, okay. Thank you. And this mic here. Okay. Thank you for that paper. That was very interesting. <clears throat> so this is this is sort of a question of clarification. Um, I guess someone could say, look, uh, an evolutionary account of human development is just incompatible with an Aristotelian account because it's non-teleological, and part of that might have to do with an account of human natures. You know, whether we can actually stipulate what a human nature is given an evolutionary account. So part of your response, I took it, was to at this point invoke Gene Porter's kind of use of a neo-Aristotelian account of human natures. What I wasn't clear about, though, was uh, whether she was saying um, that particular properties that we might have that make up a human nature are, neither, are not necessary or not sufficient, mm -hmm. but uh, you have some set of properties that are necessary and sufficient. Was that the claim? I think she wants to say, she's, she's not entirely clear on this, but I think what she wants to say is that there's no single characteristic uh, that is um, both necessary and sufficient, uh, or either necessary or sufficient for, uh, for human nature. So um, by a lot, uh, um, we can talk about what exactly she means by that, biological functions and traits, but... Um, the reason I think it's, a, it's an interesting position is that when we think about, uh, when we look back in history, for example, what distinguishes, um, in our own evolutionary history, what distinguishes us from Neanderthals? Well, it's actually kind of difficult to um, point to a single characteristic. I think um, I, my interests are also forward-looking. Um, what happens if we, um, if we engineer... Um, uh, yeah, organisms and such human organisms in such a way that they have characteristics that current human organisms do not have. Um, are they um, are they a different species? Well, I think I think what Porter wants to say is that you can't simply point to one single characteristic and and that this is a making or breaking characteristic in terms of what species it counts for. You have to look at you, you look at the she would say you have to look at the way of life of. Um, the, the whole characteristics um, and behaviors of Neanderthals and, um, and ask whether they're the same, um, they, they can be explained um, in the same way that we explain um, the behaviors and characteristics of Homo sapiens sapiens. And I think she would, she would argue that it's a, the, the reason we separate those into two, 
distinct species is because they're um, at, at there some of the behavior there's no single behavioral difference that that makes uh, for a difference in kind but the way any given behavioral characteristic is related to every other one um, is, it may differ in the two um, in the in the two and it therefore it makes most the the best way of accounting for their behaviors is to say that they're two different kinds but that's different from saying there's one make it or break it characteristic. And it also, I think, helps to account for, um, in the case of humans, people with severe disabilities. Um, and I, I'm also, I, um, I, I'm, I do work in, in bioethics, but I'm troubled by notions that um, there's some characteristic that a, an embryo has to have in order, to, some single characteristic in order for it to count as humans. If it doesn't have that characteristic, we can do what we want to it. Um, so there are a number of reasons why I think that um, the, a position that doesn't rely on one single characteristic uh, um, is a helpful position. Thank you. Hi, Jerry. Hey, John. Good to see great, you. Good to see you. Um, great paper. Um, <clears throat> it, your paper did raise a couple of questions that I thought um, are fascinating. Um, one of the most basic is to what extent do the very notions of therapy or enhancement that you're using presuppose a certain Aristotelian or otherwise understanding of human nature that uh, the viewpoints that want to advocate for goods uh, apart from nature in some sense presuppose and they're thinking about what those goods would look like. So that's kind of the one uh, question is what are we presuming to have coherent notions of therapy and enhancement? Yeah. Um, and the second question is um, there's one thing you know to talk about certain in terms of genetic changes, it really depends, I suppose, to some extent, what you're talking about. I mean, if you're talking about perhaps making a change in a gene that would eliminate cystic fibrosis, I mean, that's one thing. But um, what about kind of chimeric changes or, chi you know, chimeric beings, mm -hmm. um, which really seems to blur the species boundaries? And I'm not sure it's as far off as maybe you think it is. Uh, so that, I mean, that seems to uh, make more pressing some of these questions. Uh, because my guess is, although we may not know about it, that a lot of these chimeric organisms are already being tested out in various laboratories in various parts of the world. Uh, you know, human, uh, various animal um, chimeras. Um, yeah. I'm almost sure they probably exist in various places, uh, failed or otherwise. But, um, and how much does that press on us to come up with the count? My third question, and sorry to keep uh, pressing, but you also said you had objections on other grounds which you then didn't go into, and I understand you have limited time, but I uh, would be curious, at least if you would point uh, to the direction of the kinds of objections you have, they're different than those of O'Donovan and Porter, some of the biotechnological questions. Great, okay, thank you. Those are, those are all three very, um, very, really challenging questions. Let, let me take the, start with the second one. Um, uh, well, first of all, I don't think, uh, um, to me, um, chimeras, I'm sure we will develop them, they, they don't, to me, present any great problems for exactly Porter's reasons. Um, uh, uh, the, I, the kinds of, to the extent that I accept, um, and I do, I think I, I am, um, I am intrigued and and I think um, convinced by some of the neo-Aristotelian uh, moves in the philosophy of biology. But to to, um, to the extent that um, 
the, that you don't simply have a single characteristic that makes someone human. I think it's actually rather easy to resolve. Chimeras are going to, you're only going to be, be able to explain the behaviors and characteristics of chimeras by showing uh, as a whole, as an organism, uh, a chimera as an organism by um, referring it to a kind that's going to be different from the human kind. Now, the real question is, I think the real difficult question is, uh, at what point do humans, um, do human traits change enough that we say that there's another kind, that, that, that we're dealing with another kind? I, that's, that's a difficult question, but let's just take some of the things that people are talking about now. Let's say we have dramatically in, increased, a dramatically increased human lifespan, so we solve the, the Hayflick limit, and we, um, telomere um, shortening is ended, and humans can live two, three, four hundred years. Is that a different kind? I don't think so. Um, I, I, you can't read the, the first few chapters of Before the Flood in Genesis and think that um, humans who live 900 years are not human, right? Uh, some other species. Uh, what about, uh, here's something I, I, I um, worry about a little bit more. Uh, some people do think that we'll be able, whether genetically, biochemically, or whatever, to, to um, permanently alter the range of emotions that, that humans have. So what if you have, uh, if you have some uh, organisms with a very different range of emotions than these other organisms, at that point, are you are you talking about different kinds? Um, I mean, some biologists would just say, do they still mate with each other? Um, I don't think that's um, apparently humans and Neanderthals mated um, with each other. So I don't think that's um, th that is necessarily going to help us. That yeah, a simple criterion, but um, but at a certain point, they might come to live characteristically different kinds of lives. They might exhibit very different behaviors. Um, and at that point, we might be talking about um, different kinds of, different organisms, um, kinds of organisms, I should say, different species even. Um, um, let, uh, just, just to make one observation, I, I, I have known in my life um, a number of very cheerful people and a number of very dour. Um, people, and one of the things, just anecdotally, I've noticed is that, that cheerful and dour people tend to marry one another. <laughs> and, um, so I kind of want to think that maybe we could change the range of emotions and we wouldn't really be changing kinds. But uh, and I don't know. I, but at a certain point, I think we'd have to ask those questions. Now, some of the things that, that transhumanists talk about, if I upload my, uh, let's assuming that, um, that, that this could be done and that something uh, meaningful would be uploaded, the upload scenario that Ray Kurzweil and people like this talk about you upload your, your um, brain, you know, the, the ideas that neural digital interfaces are developing to the point, they are really developing in some interesting directions, but uh, uh, that we'll eventually be able to upload our brains into a, a, a silicon-based uh, uh, format. Well, that's not changing human nature at all. The person whose brain was uploaded is still the same person, still the same nature. We have to ask what this other entity is that now, uh, and my relation to it, um, but that's not changing human nature at all. I, I, my view is it's just really hard to change human nature into something else. Um, I, I think you can make all kinds of changes to human nature, but changing humans into something else is very, very hard to do. And I don't see many um, uh, things on the horizon that do that. You had a couple other questions. I'm afraid, I think I'm in order to get to the next, we're gonna, maybe we can talk about those after the break. Hi, uh, thank you very much for that talk. Um, I'm not that smart. I'm not a philosopher or things. I'm an engineer. I work on, on staff here at U of T, very interested in this, this subject. Um, 
think, just for clarification of your conclusion, uh, the following scenario, uh, humans actively, genetically, let's say, make us stronger and, and faster mm -hmm. for whatever reason. It's, it's helpful, so we start to change our, our species to be stronger and faster. Um, are you saying that, let's say that we, we make that change, or even we do another change, and, and through that we change our nature? Let's say that we become a little bit more in favor of eugenics mm -hmm. as a species. It makes sense. It makes economic sense. It's good for our net. So we become a little bit more eugenic. Mm -hmm. And so those that haven't been modified, whatever, they die off actively or passively. Are you saying that biologically we can't do that or we won't do that, that the, that the biotechnology will not make us, let's say, just for the reason of, of example, more eugenic thinking, where we actively or passively... Uh, kill off the weak or, or the, the former kind. So, in, in clarification, are, are you saying that we can and maybe should do the former, but we shouldn't or be careful that we don't do the latter? Mm -hmm. Meaning, we're changing maybe some nature, which right now, as a species, you know, we, we're, we're against eugenics. We tried the experiment, and it quickly died off. So could you clarify that yeah. little kind of a thought experiment? Yeah. Uh, uh, I would first of all say I don't think we are against eugenics. I think we're against state-sponsored uh, state eugenics. But I think we engage in eugenics all the time. Um, in fact, it, 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 we engage it in ways that trouble me. I th um, Pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, for example, I think um, has a lot of troubling implications for people with disabilities and so on. But let me... Um, uh, let me take the, your, the question, which was a very, very good one. Um, let, let me start with this. Um, uh, it's well known that, uh, that the human brain evolved in connection with tool use and, and, and other human activities. And, and um, even after the human brain had developed um, in, in, um, phylogenetically, um, the human brain uh, underwent, uh, has, under, has undergone, I should say, um, significant alterations due to literacy. Um, so um, there's, um, there are certain uh, brain functions that people in literate societies um, have uh, developed that are not in non-literate societies and vice versa. So, um, so literacy, I, for all kinds of reasons, I think literacy is the most important and, and most influential technology humans ever developed. But Let's look at uh, let's look at, at, uh, at something like that, or, or let's take height. Height in, I think, in um, North America and, and Europe um, between 1900 and 1950, in, increased by something like a by 25 percent. Um, longevity um, in France went from about 50 years to about 80 years over the course of the 20th century. So um, we have had at the ha at the hands of, hum of unintentional human activity, um, significant alterations of human traits and, and functions. Uh, those are just three we could go on all day. Um, now, um, uh, do, we, uh, do we ever um, imagine that those who have undergone those um, changes are more human uh, than those who have not? Or, that, um, or do we have difficulty recognizing those who have not? Um, undergone such changes as members of the same species. No, in fact, we, um, maybe even in questionable ways, we try to 
um, bring to them the same alterations that we've um, undergone. Um, so um, what this suggests to me is that there, there can be a, quite a lot of alteration to human nature without threatening our recognition of one another as members of the same species. And um, that's, so that's one point. A second point, um, how, okay, so let's say we start becoming intentional. Well, all of these were unintentional changes. Let's say we start becoming intentional. What resources do we have at, at our availability? Well, genetics. Um, we are just now, after um, about, uh, I, think, um, I think the first human uh, gene transfer technology, tri gene transfer trials, went, clinical trials, went underway in 1989. So um, over that period of time, 26 years, um, we are just now beginning to be capable of making some progress against some single gene diseases. Uh, uh, we, uh, I've referred to pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Um, it's it's um, impossible at this point to select for um, very many po uh, positive traits. There's, you can select for um, blood, blood types, HLA um, compatibility, uh, which some people have done. Um, you know, had a child to uh, be a donor, um, uh, and, if, and maybe a couple other uh, sex selection, obviously. But but there's very little the Gattaca scenario where we have, where we use pre-implantation genetic diagnosis to choose the embryo with the traits we want. Uh, not even on the horizon. Uh, a lot of people thought that psychopharmacological um, interventions that in the 90s um, that, that developed in the 90s would fundamentally change our our um, emotional capacities and that sort of thing. Uh, we have some things like, a lot of things to change human um, cognitive uh, concentration functions. Uh, some people in this room may have taken Adderall before an exam. Um, uh, but nothing has, um, none of those interventions have taken any human characteristic beyond an, um, a biostatistical normal range. Um, so, um, it's, uh, it's, I think it's rather unlikely in the foreseeable future that we're actually going to change human nature um, in any significant way. We can, we can, you know, we will be able, I'm sure, to increasingly, uh, increasingly be able to change human traits, but to actually change human nature into something else, uh, I think is unlikely. And, and is that because it's in the code, basically, that we can't even actively change the Yeah, I think, I think um, I would be inclined to, um, I, I'd probably be inclined to go a little bit with O'Donovan here that, um, um, that uh, you know, biological evolution made us um, very, um, re uh, has resulted in us being very resistant to being able to change ourselves very much. And, um, and is, O'Donovan would say, well, that's, um, we can explain, we should explain, that that shouldn't be how we explain order. We should, um, uh, that, that that's, that our order evolved. Um, we should instead go the other way around and say God wanted to, wanted there to be a, you know, stable human nature. And evolutionary processes were the, were the means by which God brought that about. Okay, one last question. Thank you. Yes, I'd, um, I'd just like to ask, um, so I guess 
at the end, uh, when you when you finished your paper, you you said that um, it, you could you could perhaps oppose biotechnology yeah. on on pragmatic or utilitarian grounds, uh, at least um, in one way, when you by by sort of uh, looking at the possible goods. But uh, on the basis of the thinkers that you've looked at, you can't uh, do that any longer on the basis of evolved biological human nature. So I guess um, my question, um, well, just to take one major example within the Catholic world, that being uh, Carol Wojtyla, uh, mm -hmm. John Paul II, right. with his, uh, what's popularly known as theology of the body, um, he discerns a sort of logic of creation in what he, what he calls human nature. And, um, and so he says that, in a way, respecting that nature is to respect the logic that God places within it, within, within the narrative, which he doesn't oppose to um, biological evolution. Not, in fact, he, he said in the late 90s, evolution is more than just a theory uh, for him. Um, I guess my area is more literature, so um, uh, a, a prominent Catholic writer, J.R. Tolkien, talks about the relationship between creator, the creator and human, quote, sub-creators. And he says that uh, an artist, a human uh, artist, uh, the, the greatness of a work in, of art is um, the degree to which the human artist in his work reflects the logic of the divine artist. So sub-creation is legitimate and proper and beautiful insofar as it re reflects the logic found in creation itself. So um, that understanding of, of nature and of the created order is, is one that's ordered towards mission and that one that, that understands the idea of human sin and human concupiscence and human action and takes it seriously, but also the possibility of redeemed human action that follows the logic of the creator. So if, if one has that understanding of human nature, of nature in general, then might it not be possible to return back to the understanding of nature as something like Joseph Ratzinger said, that we can discern the logos in creation and that we have an obligation to create in, in, in the way that God himself creates. Now, I think both O'Donovan and Porter um, are trying to do that, um, especially um, right now, uh, um, those, uh, Ratzinger is an, uh, the former cardinal. He wrote most of these things while he was Cardinal Ratzinger before his elevation to the papacy. But I think some of um, um, Cardinal Ratzinger's ways of putting these things are more like um, O'Donovan's because he is a kind of Augustinian um, and, and Platonist. But um, I'm, not, I'm not always quite sure, and they're, they're not intending to work out all the, uh, the details of um, how the, the logic of, or the logos of, um, created order relates to evolutionary biology. And I, I think um, the reason I chose O'Donovan and Porter, um, apart from the fact that one's an evangelical and one's Catholic, uh, is that I think they have given us the two best accounts we have of how that is the case. And they're two different accounts. And um, I think, I think Porter's for, Porter would see her formal and final causes as um, that is, uh, she wouldn't use the term, she's a Thomist, not, a, not an Augustinian. But, but I, I think she, that is the logos of, of nature for her. That's what, what the logos of nature is, that there's an order. Um, and 
Um, and, and the fact that it's not a rigid order is a good thing for her. It's, it, um, God didn't intend to create a rigid order. Well, Donovan wants an unchanging order. The kinds and ends are unchanging. The price of that is that he, um, he does have to, it, he distinguishes pretty sharply between the processes that bring things into existence and the order, the finished order um, in which they, they stand. And um, the, the, the value of that, I think, is that you don't um, have the, the problems that Porter has, what, what happens when um, um, uh, you know, things change now in the future, what, um, uh, what happens, with, say, with biotechnological change or if there is further evolutionary change or whatever. I think she, she then has to, she's committed to saying, well, we just see that as part of God's order. I think O'Donovan can say that there's something about our created nature as it now is um, that, um, that is norm that has normative status irrespective of how it came into existence and will go out of the existence. And the reason I think that is significant, the value of his approach, uh, the value of her approach is it can explain things like, like um, evolutionary and biotechnological change much more easily. The, the thing I, that's value about his approach, I think, is O'Donovan can answer the question of why our nature as it, as it now is, is good. Um, and why, uh, one of the problems I think with, um, with especially I think with some of the Teilhardian um, approaches to uh, biotechnology, it's very hard to understand on those sorts of approaches why God made things the way God did in the first place. Um, and and, and uh, um, if uh, James Peterson's approach, if, if, we're, um, if the world is not finished and still uh, and the created order we have is just a starting point. Um, a starting point sounds kind of arbitrary. So, what can, how, what can we make of the passages in Genesis, which I take very seriously, that um, creation is complete and it is good as it is? But anyway, that's how I would answer those questions. Jerry, thank you so much for that wonderful presentation and discussion. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so we're, we're going to have a little break. There's some coffee and, and I believe snacks and whatnot in the room uh, just beside us here. And um, so let's, uh, let's go until uh, I gather back here at 10.50, 10.50 for a panel uh, on evangelical and Catholic uh, approaches. Okay. bit about how they overlap, uh, how they cohere with one another, possibly how they differ as well. What we're going to do then is bring this particular aspect of the question forward in a panel presentation now with three scholars, 
Um, the question that each one of these three will address, in, in their own way, of course, is the one mentioned in the program brochure. Namely, what specific insights do Catholics and evangelicals bring to the theological interpretation of evolution? And so we want to uh, bring forward then this aspect of Dr. McKinney's talk um, that I've just spoken of. Um, and so in order of presentation, uh, we're going to hear first of all from, uh, and I won't introduce each of them, I'll let them come up, uh, but we'll begin with Dr. Steve Studebaker, uh, followed by Dr. Ephraim Radner, and then uh, finally uh, finishing with Dr. Jeremy Wilkins. They will each speak for approximately 15 minutes. Uh, Steve Studebaker, uh, Studebaker pardon me, is Associate Professor in Systematic and Historical Theology and Howard and Shirley Bentel Chair in Evangelical Thought at McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton. Uh, Dr. Ephraim Radner, who introduced or welcomed us this morning here from Wycliffe College, and Dr. Jeremy Wilkins from Regis College, also, uh, again, part of the Toronto School of Theology Federation. Um, both Dr. Radner and Dr. Wilkins, uh, Wilkins are uh, described briefly in the uh, brochure. Without further ado, I'll turn over the lectern to uh, Steve Studebaker to get us uh, started. I want to thank Dr. Allen for organizing this uh, conference and Wycliffe for hosting it. Um, appreciate it. It's a timely topic, I think very important, and also appreciate the uh, invitation to participate in it. Uh, I want to begin my co comments on an evangelical contribution and conversation on the topic of evolution with uh, two historical motivations that have uh, well motivated the evangelical um, uh, relationship with the theory of evolution and any attempts to try to reconcile with it and also uh, their tendency to, at least historically, to reject it. And those historical motivations are two. The first one is fear and the second one is fidelity. Fear has been a major motivating factor of the evangelical response to evolution. But why have evangelicals been afraid of evolution? Well, there are two reasons. Conservative evangelicals, and I'll, I'll refer to them sometimes as conservative evangelicals, sometimes fundamentalists. I'll also use the terminology of liberal, and it's important that I'm not using those in a pejorative sense, but rather in a historical theological sense. So when I say liberal, it's not a sort of a bashing term or fundamentalist, a bunch, I'm not, I don't have some negative stereotype uh, necessarily in my mind. But two, two, two reasons for fearing uh, 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 evolution. The first is that it undermines confidence in the Bible. It makes the Bible untrustworthy because the Genesis creation accounts can no longer be understood as true, at least in a modern scientific sense. Opposition to evolution was part of the uh, larger fundamentalist modernist debate, uh, which fractured the evangelical consensus of the 19th century. The concessions of liberalism enervated the Christian faith of its core teachings, according to the fundamentalists. Embracing evolution and its consequences for traditional Christian theology and Christian, to, uh, Christian doctrine, they thought, was another step on the slippery slope of an eviscerated faith. It also undermines belief in the special creation of the human being. 
How are we to believe that God created human beings in a unique way, in a special way, and moreover, in the divine image, if we have within our family tree a chimpanzee and ultimately some primordial stew? In other words, the theory of evolution seems to undermine the very things that make uh, uh, or that underline human dignity in the sense that we're created by God and for a special relationship with God vis-a-vis the other living creatures. Although we must admit that even Genesis 2 recognizes that we're made of dirt. The other motivating factor of the evangelical response to evolution is fidelity. The fundamentalists wanted to remain faithful to the gospel and retain traditional Christian doctrines and theology. And I think in this, we can all agree, was a, was a noble goal. I think all of us want to retain faithfulness to the gospel and to the essential aspects of historic Christian orthodoxy. I, I think we should also recognize that in some respects, the evangelical fear was justified in terms of their reaction to evolution. I remember as a graduate student at Marquette University reading Adolf von Harnack's uh, The Essence of Christianity, and I was struck with Harnack's hubris. I mean, he takes the, the, the writings of, of John and the Pauline writings and just dismisses them out of hand. He says, whatever is of worth from these books in the New Testament can be assembled on a mere scrap of paper. So with that sort of a brazen uh, dismissal and reductionism, it's not surprising that the, that the early or that the uh, fundamentalists were uh, hesitant and uh, reacted against the theory of evolution. In fact, I think we should sympathize with them in some respects, if not follow them in their reactionary separatism. The second issue that I want to raise is that of culture and accommodation. Both the liberals and the fundamentalists were clearly and soundly modern. They, they, they both accepted the basic assumptions of modern science and history. But they did not respond to those uh, assumptions in the same way. They, they reached different conclusions. The liberals decided to reject the traditional uh, understanding and reading of the book of Genesis and the creation stories and largely historicize them. They're, products of an ancient Near Eastern context, and we're not to take them too seriously. Perhaps we can mind them for how they speak to uh, uh, sort of universal dimensions of religious experience. The evangelicals, on the other hand, chose to defend these traditional uh, uh, readings and interpretations uh, uh, of the Bible. And, but it's important to remember that, it, that, that fundamentalism, no less than liberalism, accepted the basic assumptions of modern science and history. And this is the irony of fundamentalism. In trying to remain faithful to the Bible, it reads the Bible through a modern lens. It makes the Bible speak in modern terms. Insisting on a literal interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2, in other words, is an accommodation to modernism. Literal, in this sense, means that Genesis describes cosmic and human origins in terms of modern science and history. The evangelical literal approach to Genesis assumes the modern conceit that for the text to speak meaningfully, it must speak in terms of modern science and history. Now, modern science and history is immensely valuable. I certainly don't want to dispense, dispense with it, particularly as I, as I get older and, and will likely need to avail myself of medical facilities. But, but having said that, to think that the only worthwhile way of talking about human life and this world is in the way that Europeans and North Americans have done so in the past two centuries is either the height of hubris or the depths of ignorance. Now the problem in the effort to remain faithful to the Bible, the literal interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2 canonizes an ancient Near Eastern cosmology. 
it conveniently ignores or explains away other biblical creation stories. I remember, it's been a number of years ago, but I, I went to a, a Sunday school class, the church we were attending, and I, it was the first Sunday of the, uh, of the new class. It was on uh, uh, Christians in creation or something, something like this. And the uh, fellow who was teaching it started off with a statement to the effect that uh, if you don't believe in the biblical doctrine of creation, then you're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian. You can't take the Bible seriously. And I thought to myself, well, I'm pretty sure he has in mind Genesis 1, but what about the other uh, creation accounts that are in Scripture? For example, in Job, where you, where, which clearly draws on a Babylonian image where Yahweh is piercing the chaos monster, Rahab. So the goal of the literal interpretation is appropriate, and that is to preserve biblical integrity and let the Bible shape us rather than shaping it in our image. I think in that respect, I, I, I support the goal. Unfortunately, by insisting that the Bible speak in modernist terms, the evangelicals did precisely what they accused the liberals of doing. They interpret the text in terms of themselves. Well, let's turn the conversation more directly now to the question of evolution and a more constructive proposal. And I want to draw on two figures. Um, one is a key figure in the evangelical tradition, Jonathan Edwards, and the second is a key figure in the Catholic tradition, uh, Augustine. From Jonathan Edwards, I want to propose that creation progressively, that is in its evolutionary development, embodies the fecundity and the richness of the divine life. Edwards believed that heaven is progressive. Heaven is a fellowship of love that the saints have with each other and with their God through the Holy Spirit in union with Christ and the Father. The progressive state of heaven that Edwards affirmed, where the saints will grow ever more in their knowledge and love of God, is based on the idea that human beings are finite and God is infinite. Because of that, we can never fully comprehend and grasp the majesty and the beauty of who and what God is. And therefore, heaven will be a progressive state in which the saints will forevermore uh, grow in their knowledge and love of God. And so from their perspective, that is the perspective of the saints, heaven is dynamic. It is a never-ending journey of knowing and loving God. Now you may wonder, what, in, what on earth does an 18th century Puritan theologian's progressive notion of heaven have to do with a contemporary understanding of evangelicals and evolution? Well, let, let me offer a, a suggestion. Evolution can be understood as a progressive process from simple life forms to, to human beings. Now, from a, a naturalistic perspective, there's not, a, there's not a teleology of the evolutionary process. But clearly, from a historical perspective, there is a development that takes place to the emergence of, of, of life forms on Earth. So the diversity and the developmental nature of the world reflects the progressive capacity of the world to manifest the abundance and the richness of the divine nature. A static world, one that does not evolve, would not reflect the beauty and the majesty of God. Evolution, then, is a progressive manifestation of God, just as a Christian that grows in knowledge and love of God is a progressive revelation and manifestation of God's grace and love. So we can find a parallel for that in the natural development of the world. In terms of Augustine, I want to propose this, that the diversity and the symbiosis of creation manifests the personal distinction and fellowship of the Trinitarian God. 
Augustine is famous for his uh, development of the mutual love model, which posits that the Trinity is a fellowship of the Father and the Son who are bound together in eternal mutual love through the Holy Spirit. Now, the mutual love model provides diversification and particularity in the uh, uh, Son and the Father. The Father generates the Son from all eternity, and this provides diversity and particularity in the divine being. But the Trinity also has synergy or unity and community in the procession of the Holy Spirit as the mutual love of the Father and the Son. God as Trinity, then, is a product of the diversity of the divine persons and their intrinsic orientation to each other, or what we would call uh, uh, love. So the, there, there is particularity within the divine life, but it is not a diversity and particularity that divides in, in a sense that they become uh, uh, self-focused and, and independent, but it is a diversity and a particularity that constitutes the very community of the eternal life of God. And so individuation and unique identity are intrinsic to the unity and the community of the Trinity. Without diversity, we would not have the community of the Trinity. Community, therefore, is the product of the divine persons and their relations with each other, relations which depend on their very personal identity. It's similar to uh, Paul when he compares the diversity of the, the gifts in the church to, to the body of Christ. The, the, gift, the diversity of the gifts don't get in the way of the unity of the body of Christ. Rather, they, they in fact, instantiate it. Creation, then, embodies the diversity-constituted community of the Trinitarian God. Biodiversity is the basis of uh, the symbiosis of creation. They, they are not at odds with each other. Biodiversity can also be understood as a reflection of the triune life and the fellowship that constitutes uh, the Trinitarian God. The Trinitarian process of diversification and particularity and unity finds economic manifestation in the diversity and synergy in the life of creation. The emergence of the diverse creatures can be understood to parallel the uh, uh, generation and the diversification that takes place in the divine life and the generation of the sun. And the synergy and the symbiosis of creation can be understood to parallel the procession of the Holy Spirit as the mutual love of the Father and the Son. The symbiotic nature of creation derives from the unique nature of the diverse creatures and the elements. As the individual integrity of the divine persons constitute the Trinity, so biodiversity constitutes the community of the created world. Now, one last point that I'd like to make is the issue of death. Um, evangelicals, that I think, that, are, uh, uh, that embrace evolution still have a, a, a problem that they think about, and that is, what, how are we to understand the role of death in the process of life? Because it's, it's an intrinsic part of life in this world and, and the evolutionary process. And yet, in the biblical creation stories, it is a consequence of sin and the fall. And so the, the, the Bible portrays the creation of the world in terms of Eden, where there is no death. There's, there's everlasting life, apparently. Um, so what, what are we to do with death? Well, death, in terms of de how, how can we understand death in terms of a Trinitarian theology of evolution? Well, the passing of particular life forms, ours included, unfortunately, opens the way for the increasing manifestation of the Trinitarian life. Creation can never fully manifest the transcendent magnificence and beauty of the Trinitarian God, at least in one historical moment or in one historical form. Death, then, can be understood as a way of, of making way 
for the manifold and progressive display of the divine life in creation. The Christian hope is that our particular lives and their community with each other and creation will find everlasting endurance and community in the coming of the kingdom of the Trinitarian God. Uh, along with others, I want to thank Professor Allen for making possible this gathering. I'm just going to say some remarks that are a little more foundational about uh, the relationship of evolution and thinking about human nature. Uh, my main point on the first part is that evolution theorized in a variety of ways is human nature neutral, at least in theological terms. And so that while positive affirmations about uh, Evolution may have theological payoff in indirect ways here and there. Uh, I don't think they have any direct bearing on theological anthropology. And then, outlining this claim, I'm going to, as a result, address the issue of how to understand evangelical Catholic differences in their relationship to the discussion of evolution, which I think come down in the end to political issues rather than deeply theological ones. So, my, my claim about evolution and human nature is that it's uh, an epistemological one, uh, and I'm going to follow a skeptical outlook on this. If human beings evolve or are the product of evolution or represent some section of an evolutionary historical spectrum of moving and continuous genetic bundles and so on, could we know anything about our nature as being this or that, vis-a-vis -vis its placement on this developing spectrum? Could we know what a human nature is on our own through observation of this spectrum of evolving human beings? And my first answer and claim is that we only know our own human nature of this one moment. Whether we know it well or poorly, it is the only human nature we can uh, know anything about and talk fairly reasonably about. Uh, while we may know some set of descriptive definitions of past instances of human beings or something related to them, and what will we know this from? Bones, inferred genetic trees, burial mounds, I don't know, whatever it is. In fact, though, we could never say anything specific about the nature of human being associated with these very limited sets of evidences. We already had the question, what is the nature of a Neanderthal? Could we ever know? How could we know? On what basis of what evidence? My claim is that there's so little evidence that to even speak of knowing the nature of Neanderthal uh, is a moot point. The second question is whether, having posited human evolution, we are bound to posit changes in human nature, even if we do not know what these could possibly involve. Does an evolving human nature follow from believing there is such a thing as an evolving human species? To this I would claim, if we can't know what it is, then whether it seems reasonable to posit such a change or not, it is idle speculation to define such change. Because even if there were evolving changes to human nature, we don't know where they might be located. Would they be deep or superficial, substantive, accidental, and so on? That is, it's not clear what kind of change would matter for human nature. 
We've already had some discussion about that in the very rich lecture of Professor McKinney. And whether even if such significant change has or is taking place, we wouldn't know what it would be. That is not without some a priori definition of human nature to work with that cannot be simply uh, amassed from evidences of the past, very incomplete ones. Finally, we must ask if an evolutionary model of human development, whatever the past may involve, at least makes it necessary that we prescind from declaring this or that future of human life as we know it today as something bound to human nature, since in fact it might be in the process of changing. How can we say anything is human nature today since it could be just changing and, and so on and so forth? Now this, of course, as we all know, is a major plank in contemporary arguments regarding not just the kinds of uh, things Professor McKinney was talking about with respect to um, biotechnological development, but arguments about sexual behavior or various other elements bound to social frameworks of relationship. Either evolutionary needs are theorized only now to be denied importance since various environmental changes have taken place, lifespan, health, reproductive technologies, and so on, which in that sense take us off the evolutionary train, so to speak, so we can't really claim there is a nature that is stuck somewhere. Or the demand of these needs is relegated simply to historical circumstances as a principle, such that something called human nature need not enter into evaluative calculus. We're always changing. There is no such thing as a nature that's stable. So gender roles, fertility potentials, and so on are intrinsically malleable in social terms today. Hence, they have nothing to do with human nature, even if such a thing exists. That is, does the fact of evolution relativize specific claims made today or in the historic past about human nature? And my answer to this is, if we are going to talk about human nature, then the basis for such talk cannot be hypothesized evolutionary claims, because these cannot be sufficiently well located so as to offer any guidance. We do not know what we were. So we cannot know how this is related to who we are. And we have no basis for determining who we are in relationship to the past or to the process of change we may be within. So, my conclusion from a Christian point of view then is that the question of human nature thus becomes a fundamental and pretty much exclusively theological question. The acceptance or rejection of species evolution being of only secondary importance. So, if that's the case to the explicit question of Catholic and evangelical insights, which I would phrase this way. When a Catholic says a human being is X, or an evangelical says a human being is why, what about their being Catholic or evangelical is going to shape their answer? It will, it seems to me, be exactly the same things that shape their affirmation such as the church is X or the church is Y. I do not believe that embrace of an evolutionary theory about biological origins will alter the differences here one way or the other. Nor need their theological answers alter their embrace or rejection of evolution. In this regard, we obviously find both Catholics and evangelicals who either voice concerns about evolution or who embrace it. That is, being Catholic or evangelical in and of itself does not predict whether a Christian will accept evolution, or it doesn't seem uh, to, in any case, if one takes into account 
things like education levels, political affiliation, and another, other social uh, factors. The Pew uh, surveys have followed this in great detail. Being Catholic or evangelical doesn't matter here any more than it has been able to predict scientific reasoning, research, or discovery in the past or today. Despite claims about particularly Protestant attitudes uh, behind the rise, say, of scientific method and experimental research in the 17th century especially, there is little evidence over the long term that the attitudes in question are peculiarly motivated theologically then or now. Like politics, it would seem that it's all local, and it was. And in fact, Protestants and Catholics have often used similar theological resources or adopted similar theological postures in their approaches to articulating the character of human life. Both have relied on scripture. Both have relied sometimes on scholastic or Aristotelian frameworks. We heard, heard about Jean Porter earlier. Both have sometimes adopted uh, Platonic or Neoplatonic goggles. Uh, we heard about uh, O'Donovan on the Platonic side uh, right now, but this is true all the way back to the 16th century uh, to the present. And both have been open in various ways to historicist understandings of social development and so on. So to repeat, from a Christian point of view, the question of human nature is a fundamentally theological question, the acceptance of species evolution being of only secondary importance to actual claims that we make about that nature. And this being the case, it seems to me that the real question with respect to Catholic or evangelicals on the matter of evolution and human nature is which tradition is likely to maintain its theological foundations with respect to human nature more coherently in the midst of larger cultural historical changes that have made the topic of evolution seemingly compelling. Claims about evolution cannot tell us what to do about cloning, for instance or about marriage law, or family law, or genetic manipulations, and so on. These matters are going to be decided as they are now politically, not on the basis of the intrinsic rationality of scientific revelation. And if the question of human nature is to be directive in this political process, it will come solely, at least in any articulate way, from the religious communities who alone have a rational, if not necessarily persuasive, basis upon which to make claims about human nature. Does anybody seriously think that people like Richard Dawkins have anything to teach us about cloning and human nature except to dismiss the basis upon which we might even raise the question? As he famously said, science and logic cannot tell us what is right and what is wrong although that hasn't stopped him. And it will be the more coherent and perseverant Christian tradition that can best engage the political character of debates over techno-social change that the category human nature has become and will increasingly become subject to. Who can speak coherently and perseverantly to the issue of human nature, say, with respect to marriage law? And for that reason, I think talks like we just had about people like O'Donovan and Gene Porter are absolutely essential from a Christian point of view. We've got to get our theology straight on this. But we are talking, though, less about Protestant-Catholic theological differences, I think, than about Protestant-Catholic social catechetical difference. Who is actually going to shape the people who can have the kinds of arguments we just had laid out? And on this score, for the moment at least, Catholicism has the edge. 
the breakdown of or confusion about scripture and its authority within Protestantism, which includes evangelicalism as well, has undermined its capacity to offer a stable vision of human nature. Now, Catholicism has all the same problems about scripture as Protestantism does, but at least it has a magisterial backstop, and that provides some elements of cohesion. Catholicism's challenge, on the other hand, lies less in the coherence of its vision than in the moral witness of its institutions and whether people find them credible enough to uphold the magisterium in the face of arguments. But ultimately, I don't think evolutionary theory is a first-order theological issue. Christian self-identity theologically informed is, and it is the only issue of interest in the coming challenges of human self-ordering in the technologically unrestrained societies such as we have entered into. Thank you. The, uh, the curse of alphabetical order. <laughs> is having to go after those talks. The only time it ever gets reversed is when it's deeply unpleasant, like who gets to take the test first? <clears throat> uh, I was thinking as Professor Radner was speaking that he obviously has never taught undergraduates or he wouldn't be so full of wonder about whether we could define Neanderthal. <clears throat> let me, let me, uh, let me thank Dr. Allen and the Biologos Foundation for hosting us and, and <clears throat> the speakers who preceded me for very stimulating remarks that make mine seem all the more inadequate to me. I should say, by way of a disclaimer, uh, my, my deformacion profesional is as a dogmatic theologian, so this isn't really my bailiwick, uh, but it is very interesting to me. And uh, uh, a second disclaimer is that uh, the... the uh, the topic of the panel is resources from the Catholic and the evangelical tradition. I can't uh, presume to speak for everything from the Catholic tradition. In the main, what I have to say to you comes from, uh, is inspired by the two thinkers to which I've, I've apprenticed myself most seriously, and that's Aquinas and Bernard Lonergan. So the first, uh, a first so I have seven points, uh, and I'll just give them in, in uh, in a kind of an orderly way, I hope. The first point that I'd like to make is that uh, in terms of a resource that the, that the Catholic tradition brings to this is, uh, at least from the time of the 13th century, a kind of a relatively um, serious way of differentiating theology from other domains of human inquiry that also allowed in the medieval context someone like Thomas Aquinas to uh, uh, articulate the autonomous kind of norms and methods for philosophical inquiry as distinct from theological inquiry, and it seems to me that grounds a basis for what, what we might say generally respecting the autonomy of the sciences, respecting the autonomy of the natural sciences, respecting the autonomy of other kinds of inquiry, history, and so on and so forth. So you can, you can not separate all these different kinds of inquiry, but at least appreciate in, in a sophisticated way the different kinds of inquiry that are taking place and ask serious questions about their interrelationship. Uh, a second point that in, in a certain sense was, was raised in, in the first 
presentation from the panel has to do with distinguishing the question about God from the question about Scripture. And so it's related to my first point. Distinguishing the question about God from the question about Scripture. So evolution as a question about God, it seems to me, is a non-problem. Evolution as a question about how you read Genesis is a different kind of question. And um, if you're committed, as, as Steve said in his remarks, well, if you're committed to a certain way of construing the text of Genesis, it can provide terrific, prove to be a terrific problem for you. Um, in, in, uh, in this regard, uh, I don't want to go into too much detail, but uh, um, Joseph Ratzinger's book in the beginning, which is a series of homilies or lectures, the university sermons that he gave, uh, is, is kind of an interesting way to think about what the scriptural problem might look like from the Catholic, from a, from a Catholic perspective. Um, so my third point then, having said, so that there's an aspect to the problem and a, an aspect of the problem that has to do with how we think about God, it seems to me that at least to the best of Catholic thinking in, in the philosophical and, and theological tradition, uh, uh, put, puts the question of the relationship between God and the world on a very solid footing where the, the problem of having a dynamic world that's evolutionary and a God who is uh, the, the infinite act of understanding everything about everything in a certain way ceases to be a problem. In other words, the world can be dynamic and changing. It can have a, an imminent intelligibility that's evolutionary but yet, from the standpoint of divine transcendence, yield place to a fully determinate divine plan and intention. God is ordering all things. It seems to me this is vastly superior in the, in the way this gets worked out in, in a thinker like Aquinas or, or somebody like Lonergan. God as the, the transcendent cause of all is vastly superior to, to uh, um the, the, the sort of thing you get with people who sort of leap gaily from the conclusion that if the world is in process, God must be in process too. Or, uh, and, and, uh, and let me dilate on this problem too by, by adding a further dimension, which is this, this kind of uh, popularity in recent years of the movement that's called intelligent design, uh, which seems to me to be a kind of a... Um, a, a reincarnation of a sort of God of the gaps sort of problem. In other words, you find some aspect of the imminent intelligibility of the world that doesn't seem to be explained without positing a transcendent designer, and you use that as a kind of a pivot point to argue for the existence of God. In somebody like Aquinas or Lonergan, it seems to me the question about God is not a question about this or that item in the universe. It's the question about the universe itself as just a contingent fact. Uh, it, 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 it turns out it seems to be a dynamic, ordered whole, but the whole itself is a kind of contingent fact, and the contingent fact is just a brute fact unless we posit some transcendent cause that uh, is, is outside that whole. So once you move into sort of that perspective, you realize the question about finite causes in the world is a very different kind of question than the question about God as a transcendent cause of the whole world. When, um, who's the fella in California? Krauss did his book, God and Nothing. It turns out nothing for him means empty space and verified laws. 
If you grant me empty space and verified laws, then I can explain how you get the universe that we have. But it's a question-begging thing. He's just supposing he doesn't need God because he's thinking of God as another item inside the system, rather than asking, what's the intelligible ground on the basis of which we have these verified laws and so forth? So uh, a, just a further aspect of that is the... Uh, the relative priority of the order of the whole to the order of the parts. That is to say, all the things that are in the world are explained as a function of the order of the whole. And so you can acknowledge an evolutionary order that explains the, the emergence and the seriation and the intelligibility of the distinct things and events that occur in the world. Uh, 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 and, and think about God's relationship to the world as, in a certain sense, first constituting the order, and then the order is explanatory of the things that are in the order. A fourth point is, what do we mean by nature? When we talk about, can we make, can we, can we select or engineer for some suite of genetic traits that will modify human nature, do we mean human nature is a thing that's reducible to our organic life or some set of biochemical, uh, some combination of biochemical factors? Or do we mean something more by nature than that? And it seems to me here uh, the kind of Aristotelian tradition of thinking about nature as an imminent principle of movement and rest is very helpful to us. That is to say, nature is a kind of an imminent finality in a thing, which is realized one way when it's a finality in an organism and another way as a finality in an animal, which is also an organism, and another way as a finality in us, which are organisms that are sensitive like animals, but you're adding a whole further uh, com complexification to the thing because you're deliberating about your purposes you're asking what you should be doing and making decisions about it and so on and so forth. Um, and so we have to have a kind of a non-reductive way of what we mean by nature, which leads me to my next point, which is that human nature turns out to be very complicated. It's a compound nature. It turns out that we're, we're, we're not static things, but we're processes of development, and we're developing across different explanatory genera of development. You're, you're developing organically, but you're also developing in your sensitivity and your psyche and your emotional life. You're also developing intellectually in the questions you ask and your ability to ask them seriously and so on and so forth. And uh, so, so we're, you could say we're processes. And we're not altogether coherent processes, because uh, there's, a, there's a third in the works, and I'll come back to that in a minute. But um, because we're processes of developing, we're also making our world. And so we're changing in relationship to a world that's changing. The world is changing, and we're changing in relationship to the world. And we're, in fact, agents by which the world is changing. And in a certain sense, it seems to me, so Professor Radner raised this point about uh, what would be the, the evidence from the past on the basis of which we could know who we were. And to some extent, you might say, well, there, human beings do have a history. 
And we have a history in a way that's different from what you might say is true about the animals, where you, you have the recurrence of the same patterns over and over. We have a history because we're co-creators of the world that we live in. And that's actually precisely why these questions about what we should do become so important for us, because we acknowledge the fact that we're co-creators. And uh, this brings me to the problem of nature and sin, which is my sixth point if you're counting. The, 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 the Enlightenment tended to naturalize sin and make religion seem weird. But it's kind of the other way around. That is to say, um, uh, and this, this, this is also related to the point Professor Radner was making, of the problem of coming, arriving at an empirical understanding of what human nature is, is that the, the data that we have is actually screwy. And it's screwy because we don't actually consistently do the things that, that in fact are sort of the imminent law of our nature. We, we fairly regularly and very predictably, we do things that are frankly absurd. And we create an objective situation in our world that's a compound of, of what we do that's authentic to, to who we are, to what we are as human beings, and what we do that in fact is somehow subhuman. So it seems to me one of the things that the Christian tradition generally has really to contribute to this question about human nature is to say, well, Human nature and human sinfulness have to be distinguished. And if you want to understand the process of a human being's life and the process of a human community, you have to have a, an analysis that can control for the fact that there's also something absurd in the process, which is sin. And sin is actually not natural. It's not part of uh, the original condition. It's a thing that we've done to ourselves. My last point. The problem of sin raises two questions for us. And they're, they're two sides of the same point. And that is, what is really bad for us? And what is really good for us? So if we, if we have a kind of a reductive way of thinking about human nature that's just organic, we'll think of, well, it's bad to have disabilities or organic impairments of whatever kind. But the Christian tradition wants to propose, I mean, Augustine at the beginning of uh, Free Choice of the Will, he says, well, evil can mean the evil we suffer or the evil we do. And then he just says, and the evil we suffer is obviously just a derivative problem. We're really interested in the problem of the evil we do. But that's just the problem that the moderns tend to occlude, the problem of the evil we do. They're just focused on the problem of the evil we suffer. And it seems to me a Christian anthropology needs to bring back into focus that the real problem is the evil we do. You know, when, when the tsunami or the, uh, the uh, earthquake hit Haiti and brought down all those buildings and there's just tremendous human suffering, and people are like, well, where is God that God allows these things to happen? And, you know, the, the, we know as human beings how to construct habitations that are sturdier, that would reduce the level of human suffering in an event like that. And here we are, rich as pigs, doing nothing. I'm not accusing anybody in particular. 
But we know if that thing had happened in a place like California where you have different kind of building standards and so forth, you have human suffering on a totally different scale. So why is the question for us, where was God? And the question is not, well, where were we? And it's because we've occluded the, we've, we've occluded the issue of what really is bad. We're thinking that the scale of the suffering is bad and we're neglecting the problem of the bad that we ourselves do by our negligence, by our unintelligence, by our failure to act, and so forth. And the flip side of that is that the human good is thought of in in, in this sort of homo economicus anthropology. It's atomistic. It's reductive. It's just economic goods and particular things that you can name But the Christian tradition proposes another way of thinking about the good that's conversational, that has its ideal in friendship, that's realized in in the cultivation of the virtues and the gift of the virtues. And uh, this somehow needs to be brought back into focus when when, uh, um, one of the things that came out in the first talk was... um, was in, a, was, was in a way precisely this point. That is, um, one of the dangers of, of this kind of moment is that we're just thinking about the, the good as these things that we can engineer to reduce suffering. And we lose sight of the fact that the good for us really is in, is in friendship and self-donation and, 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 and the achievement and gift of virtue. And so we also lose track of the question that why is it that divine wisdom has allowed evil and suffering to be part of the mix for us and part of the way in which de facto we're made to be perfect by taking up our cross and following the Lord. I'll leave you at that size. Okay, well, uh, that's, uh, that's really great. Uh, three uh, very uh, uh, rich uh, presentations of, of the question of how Catholics and evangelicals uh, negotiate these uh, points of human nature of sin and, and related matters. Before uh, we turn it over to, to you for, uh, for your comments and questions, I'm just going to give an opportunity for uh, any of the panelists to jump in first and maybe just respond, if you want to, uh, to anything that one of the other panelists said um, by way of getting the conversation going. I'll give you that opportunity first, and then if, uh, if you want to take it up, but don't, no pressure, no, <laughs> no requirement to do so. Yeah, I'll maybe, bring the, I'll maybe bring the microphone over to the table. equipment here <laughs> yeah um, yeah no I think the uh, the point that uh, dr. Wilkins makes about um, evolution is is not really a problem from the perspective of God what creates the problem particularly from an evangelicals perspective is the perspective of scripture how do we reconcile 
this uh, theory of, uh, of life on earth and its emergence with these stories of creation that we find in scripture, particularly the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 uh, stories, and, and also the idea that there was this sort of primal paradise. How does that fit, and how are we to sort of weave that into our understanding of uh, our place in the world and the, you know, if we do accept the evolutionary process of the world? Okay, so I'll uh, turn it over to, to you then. If uh, any any comments uh, or questions for any one of our panelists, and I would urge you, if it's possible, to if you want to ask your question to one panelist uh, in particular, that you uh, that you be clear uh, about that. Thank you. Now, this is uh, just a point uh, to carry forward uh, Ephraim Radner's uh, point that evolutionary theory does not really pose such a great challenge to theology per se, that theology has to develop its norms, obviously taking it into consideration because it's in the world but not of the world, let us say. Um, One of the things that has actually been a gift from evolutionary theory biology to theology, and I speak of theology in my own case coming from a a, a non-Christian tradition, but I think that it's biblically-based traditions, let's say, uh, is that evolutionary theory uh, has emphasized something similarly to what we got from quantum theory, and that is that there are not strict causal laws. uh, As Bernard Lonergan pointed out in his great work Insight, we now have statistical laws which deal with probabilities, which presuppose kind of possibilities. Now the problem that science, that natural science posed to theology, which after all talks about a God who gives commandments to free subjects, uh, is Kant's famous antinomy of freedom and necessity. You know, well if we're going to talk about human necessity, then we've just simply got to ignore the fact of the natural world which seems to be governed by strict causal laws. But once you have basically statistical laws that are probabilities, which means that we're dealing with an ontology of possibilities, and possibilities, freedom presupposes possibilities. And if there is freedom in the world, it means that there are options. But if the world itself has options, and the difference between human creatures and other creatures is the other creatures, uh, which possibility seems to be accidental, uh, it can only be described retrospectively, not even predictively. Uh, And therefore, I think that this is a, a, a fruitful way of looking at the philosophical challenge that it is posed and indicate that actually contemporary biological science poses less problems than traditional, strictly causal uh, modes. So this is just kind of an addendum to uh, 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 Ephraim's point, which does not mean uh, that that it's simply to be ignored. Uh, But the question is, what does one do with all of this, Uh, is clearly comes from someplace else, but it comes from someplace else that is to some extent uh, uh, in relation to, 
to 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 uh, uh, you know to the described uh, uh, world, and so in that way, I think that uh, it has to be looked at entirely different as actually not creating a greater problem, but actually giving a gift if theologians really know how to use it. It wasn't a question, so all I can do is nod and thank you. And uh, well, I'm glad you accepted. I <laughs> well, it was offered gratuitously. <laughs> no, no. I, 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 I just want to make my uh, stress my point to do with human nature, not about theology in general. But what can we learn? Does the issue of does the issue of evolution really uh, uh, um, challenge? Christian, in this case, Christian uh, claims and understandings and ways of talking about and coming to some conclusions about uh, human nature. And my, my point there was, it's not. And I'm not sure what you've just said um, changes, as you said. What do we do with that? I'm not sure. But, uh, but, 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 but the point in terms of human nature, you want to talk about human nature. As a theologian, human nature is the imago dei. That is human nature. Now that human nature includes also, because the Imago Deus shows itself in God's relation to communities, like the Christian church or the Jewish people or whatever, then in that sense, clearly natural sociality is included, but there's this whole transcendent dimension which defines basically human nature, and that's what theologians work with. So in other words, it's basically taking all of that that we learn from human experience, uh, but putting it in an entirely different uh, context. And in that way, uh, we should not get drawn into adopting Aristotelian notions of nature uh, and then just kind of sanctifying them. So, so uh, I, I appreciated the remark, and I, so if I could uh, try and put it in my own way, in a way that seems to me helpful to me to make sense of the thing that's at stake is that, the, that Christianity wants to push back against determinism and reductionism. And there's a way in which there's a kind of a congruence between what's happening in, in the evolutionary sciences, or at least that's what's claimed. I myself am vastly ignorant about these things. But that the evolutionary, uh, the, an, an evolutionary perspective of the world is a, is a, is a perspective that acknowledges that's non-deterministic, it acknowledges you're operating by probabilities and statistical laws and so forth. And it's also, at least in principle, it's non-reductive. That is, it'll, it acknowledges the possibility of the emergence of higher, of higher forms, higher genera. Convenient. Well, I'd like to make a, a couple of comments on uh, uh, Steve Studebaker's uh, talk. First of all, uh, the reference to uh, progressive state of heaven. Uh, I think you mentioned Edwards as the, the author of that. Uh, this is uh, very pleasing uh, because it's a very old concept. Uh, I'm not sure whether Ed Edwards read uh, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, but it's a concept which is first found in, in Gregory of, of Nyssa in the fourth century. Uh, but I very much appreciated your reference to uh, the mutual love uh, model. Uh, what disturbed me from uh, an Eastern Christian perspective, though, is that it's highly dependent uh, on the Western concept of the Trinity. And I don't think it need be. I think it can be extracted from uh, the filioque, the notion of the Holy Spirit as being a generation of the mutual love of the Father and Son. I think the mutual love uh, model in the Trinity as important in uh, the design of, of, if you like, of, of human nature itself. 
it need not be dependent on that, which would, uh, by itself, if it is dependent, then it would exclude any interest from uh, the Eastern Christian perspective. But I don't think it need to be dependent on that particular Western model of the Trinity. Uh, it seems to me what is uh, beyond this, what is emerging as a, as, a, as, a, as a question in this is really what do we understand when we talk about human nature? And there have been a few clues, including the previous question, about what this might be. And I think this is something that uh, in terms of sort of defining what we mean in terms of biological evolution of human nature, we have to know what is the starting point. Uh, I just, uh, without sort of going into this in more detail, because I think this afternoon's panel will, will touch on this to some extent, uh, it seems to me that one very important aspect that has to be kept in mind uh, is, in fact, the incarnation. Uh, the Logos, the second person of the Holy Trinity, incarnated as a human person, as a human being, uh, presumably, we always say, uh, taking all the aspects of, of human nature. So there is, in a sense, a, a fixed notion uh, in Christianity of what human nature is defined by uh, the incarnation of, of the Word of God. And I think that it's very difficult then we, if we want to say, well, perhaps the human nature will continue to evolve. It just seems to me that there is a problem here. Uh, will there be a homo super sapiens uh, at some stage in the future? And if so, how will the incarnation of Christ as ordinary human uh, homo sapiens relate to this supernature? I, I'm not sure that the, uh, there's no answer to this problem, but I think we have to be uh, aware of uh, a certain uh, background, a certain uh, constraint, a certain fundamental notion in Christianity uh, that the incarnation is uh, a reality that we all recognize and accept, and it has some determination of what, how we think about uh, human nature being. So I'm just raising this as a problem rather than uh, trying to see exactly how it would work out uh, in terms of if, if we start uh, fiddling and somehow with, with human nature. Uh, but I said it comes back to the fundamental point of perhaps we should be very clear what we mean by human nature uh, before we, we start defining what possible changes there might, there might be uh, to, to this nature as a result of uh, future evolution, whether uh, natural or artificial. Yeah, I was not aware about uh, of the uh, progressive notion of uh, heaven in uh, Nyssa. My work's focused in uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards and in uh, Augustine and others. So, but but thanks for for bringing that to my, my attention. Uh, in terms of the mutual love model, yeah, it's it. Uh, I think that that's one of the weaknesses of, of using it exclusively is that it is clearly a, a Western model and assumes, although maybe not necessarily, the filioque. Um, I did do some, was doing some research on a recent book on on the uh, Pentecostal Trinitarian theology, and um, in that research I found some elements not not in the developed form that you find in the De Trinitate of Augustine in Book 15, but there are elements of sort of this of a mutual love notion. I can't remember. I think it was in Nyssa, but I, I can't remember. It was one of the three Cappadocians. I can't remember which for sure, but um, referenced in the book, no doubt. Um, but there were elements that, they, again, not as developed as, as Augustine, but the, this idea that the spirit plays this unifying uh, relationship that that's characterized as love was, was not, not the same as in Augustine, but within a, if you will, semantic thought world that, was, that I thought was compatible. Um, so... I guess one more thing I would say with the mutual love model. I, I've used it here um, 
but I, I, no, normally in my work, I, I wouldn't try to rely exclusively on just one, on one approach to the Trinity. The, the, the notion of, of the incarnate Son of God as being sort of a baseline or touchstone for understanding human nature makes all kinds of sense. I mean, necessary sense. But it also has all kinds of problems, too. I mean, it doesn't tell us what to do ab about issues of genetic uh, changes for lifespan or, or uh, gender. And I mean, they're, they're, uh, the, the, the very particularity of Jesus' incarnate life is such that um, a lot of work and very contested work has to go in to be able to use it as a touchstone for the kinds of moral decision making that, that some of which came up in, in, in our, first, our first lecture. But I do think that ought to properly to be uh, one of the central things that Christians bring to the, to, to the discussion about human nature. Absolutely. I, I, I just uh, would, would say one thing that it seems to me is really intriguing or important about this idea that we have that Christ reveals us to ourselves. And so, uh, for, as Christians, it's in Christ that we have the exemplification of what, what it means to be a human being in the most uh, adequate way. And the a thing that really strikes me about that is that it also means that whatever it means to be a human being, it's not the sort of thing you discover in a laboratory. It's the sort of thing you discover in the story of Christ and in the story of the saints and in the story of others. And I was thinking about this uh, um, when, when Professor Radner mentioned Dawkins in his remarks. One of the most telling things for me was he gave, Dawkins gave an interview in the New York Times and he says, well, I never read fiction, and particularly the sort of fiction that's supposed to illuminate the human condition. I never could understand how you were supposed to learn about human nature from a novel. And I thought, well, that tells you just about everything you need to know about where this is going. <clears throat> uh, my question is also for Professor Studebaker. Uh, you, I was intrigued by your comments at the very end of your presentation on death. You know, was there death before the fall, this kind of thing. And uh, I think that is a crucial issue. And I was just wondering if, um, uh, should Christians mean the same thing by an animal's death as they do by uh, a human death, or is death in those two instances mean something different? I'm trying to thought in terms of, um, I mean, it's, I'm not sure if I'm, yeah, could you clarify that a bit maybe? Uh, I mean, well, I'd just say, well, it seems like if, you know, if an evolutionary account of origins, you know, is correct, and it seems like, you know, we have good reason to think so, then there is a lot of animal <laughs> death, you yeah. know, a lot of animals dying <laughs> before, uh, you know, human beings were around. Right. So maybe one way, I think a lot of, you know, folks have, have kind of taken this route. It's like, well, maybe if we're Christians, when we talk about uh, human beings as made in the image of God, when they die, you know, that's something different than you know an animal dying, right? Yeah. Okay. I think in, in, I think the answer to the question is yes and no. Um, in G Genesis, for example, it talks in Genesis two talks about the human being receiving its life uh, from the you know the breath of the breath of God and such. 
Um, and so, ah, well, see, that makes us different from all the other living creatures, but not so fast, because if you read the flood narratives, it talks about the living creatures, the breath of life was taken from them, and they perished. And so in that sense, there's a fundamental continuity that we share with uh, all living creatures from a theological perspective in terms of having our life and what happens when we lose it, that the breath of life ceases to animate us. So there is that sense in which, we, yeah, our death is the same as, as the other living creatures. But I think it's also the case that uh, in, in the biblical stories that there is something unique about the humans. Um, only the humans uh, receive the breath of life in a way that enables them to, um, you know, when God comes to them in the cool of the day, to have relationship with them and, uh, to, you know, to exercise stewardship and such. And so I think that, you know, I want to affirm that there is something unique about the humans. Um, and in, so in that sense, the death of a human is more significant than that of a, you know, a mosquito um, or, or what have you. Um, and I think it also raises the issue of eschatology. Um, Romans says that liberation awaits for its uh, liberation from the bondage to decay. Revelation talks about a new heaven and a new earth. And so there's this promise that the resurrection that uh, Christians anticipate has a parallel in the natural world or the, in, in creation itself. But does that mean that every, you know, that, that my cat, you know, that died, Hugo, his name was Hugo, is he going to be part of the everlasting kingdom in the same way that I hope that my children are? I, I don't know about that. Uh, good morning. I have uh, several questions, uh, but they tend to revolve around the same issue. Um, my first question is... Um, if we are trying to reconcile evolutionary discussions with um, a Christian account of human origins, um, I'm wondering if that requires us to still try to be detailed in how we explain human origins. Are we, are we still, is there a question of when did humans fall? Is there a question of um, are all human beings originated from a primal ancestor? or are they simultaneously developing in different regions at the same time? Um, uh, a, second, a second issue, uh, I think, uh, is more directed to the Roman Catholic perspective. My experience has been that the Roman Catholic Church has been amongst the most open to discussing evolution, but I always got the sense that they gave a caveat, that you can talk about everything about evolution as long as you don't account for the human soul and human morality. And so I'm wondering if that has a God of the gaps kind of mentality. I feel like scientists would feel like the theologian is always putting a carrot that the donkey can never get because you'll always say you can't explain this. Um, and we can define human nature in such a way that it's always, or the soul or the spirit, that it's always too abstract for the scientist to ever uh, attempt to attract. And then the third question is... Um, are we trying to wed ourselves particularly to the evolutionary theory, or is this more of an issue about just being embracive of science wherever it is at the moment? I'm wondering if, you know, 100 years from now or 200 years from now, the evolutionary theory becomes the last Galileo-Copernicus issue, and then maybe 100 years from now we realize maybe there is a better scientific theory out there to account for issues. Um, is the church trying to wed itself to this theory or this way of thinking, or are we just trying to make a bigger case about whatever the best science leads, the church can always um, adapt or accommodate? Thank you. 
So, so just briefly on the on the uh, on the Catholic part of the question, I think what they what they do want they do want to avoid uh, another kind of Galileo sort of thing, and so they want to be very careful about laying down the your boundary markers. Uh, in in Humani Generis of Pius XII, the, the main things he's concerned about with evolution have to do with, in a way, the points you raised. Polygenism, that is to say, he wants to affirm very clearly there's one human family. Um, uh, the, uh, and the, the problem of the, the discontinuity, there's a kind of a discontinuity between the soul and and, and matter, that, that is to say that the human spirit can't be adequately reduced to its material conditions and so in some meaningful sense is infused by God. Uh, what you do with that is a further question, which I'll come back to in just a second. And then um, there is a solidarity in sin that's related to the, the unity of the human family. So the, the Christian story is that, at, that there's a primeval rupture at the beginning of our at the beginning of our race that is alienating us from God and from each other and from our own most selves and from the natural world. And um, so, but, but those are f- sort of fairly general boundary markers. And, it, and so just on the one thing of the infusion of the soul, or, I mean, I think it's, I think, I think uh, if you have a non-reductive philosophy, you can have a pretty good argument that's not just based on revelation, that, but it seems to me isn't going to be revised, that, that, that um, intelligence is not reducible to the dimensions of matter and motion. And so there is a kind of a discontinuity there, that the, that the death of the organism is not the destruction of the individual. And scripture, more or less, this uh, came into my mind in the question about the meaning of dying for human beings. Well, it's related to what I was talking about, about what's really bad for us, because when St. Paul talks about two kinds of dying, the dying in the body, but also being dead in sin. And corresponding to the two meanings of dying, there are two meanings of resurrection and two meanings of living. And uh, so, so there, is, there is something there that I think is, is important, but I won't belabor the point. Bueller. So yeah, the uh, the issue of the uh, of the fall and um, the emergence of, of human beings and whether it was in you know with an original couple, I think uh, I think the, issue, the one of the key questions to think about is when we when we read uh, the Genesis two Genesis one creation story, particularly Genesis two, and we're talking about the uh, uh, humans and their relationship to God. Um, do we need to to understand that in a historical sense, which I, I think probably the people in the uh, in ancient Israel probably did. They probably took these stories as you know what we think of as history. They probably thought it was that's what happened. Um, but the question is, do we need to do that? Was that what uh, what God intended ultimately for us to take away from those stories? That there was this original couple that uh, were running around in a primal paradise and they were naked and then suddenly they, re- they ate some fruit and realized they were, they were they, oh my god Eve, um, is that the way we're to understand it or to use um, uh, Dr. Wilkins uh, uh, term, the primeval rift are we to understand that primeval rift that fall into sin as a historical event between a singular couple or are we to understand it more theologically and existentially as something that narrates a story that all of us are quite familiar with 
that we have this sense that the world that we see about us is not the way things are supposed to be, that it should be better, that Eden is what we should be experiencing, and yet we know that that is not the world that we experience. We experience the world of Genesis 3, the world of death, the world of the sweat of the brow, and, and, the pro- and, 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 and yet we have this lingering sense that, that that's not the way this world is supposed to be, and that God is active in this world in and through us, hopefully, to uh, eradicate those things that we intuitively know, and in the base of our soul, know is not, not the way that the world uh, should operate. And I think the point about uh, wedding ourselves to a particular theory of evolution or understanding of it is is an important point. I think that um, I I would be happy, I guess, if evangelicals would just stop being anti-evolution all the time and making it a a litmus test of genuine faith and of confidence in scripture. my own sense is that this whole issue of what to do with evolution is, has been an enormous distraction. We are now living in a world where the, 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 the fault line is uh, basically, uh, to pick up something uh, Professor Wilkins said, is basically an understanding about what are the goods of being alive at all. And Christians have some fundamental claims about this that are completely different from a world in which something like evolution is viewed as sort of a defining feature of how we're to understand reality. Uh, and to me, that's the big issue. I don't care whether people are, you know, accept this view or that view of evolution. That's not, and make a big difference. The, the big difference is whether the goods of being alive are understood in terms of the kinds of things that have been laid out in the Christian gospel or something else, a world that is materialistically reductive or et cetera, et cetera. These, this is a, that's the rift. And it's not clear to me that, uh, uh, you know, if the church is going to be spending all its time arguing about evolution, uh, we are missing the main point about what the actual issue is in being alive. Um, I guess that's that's part of it. Yeah. So, so, so just two, two, two quick points. One in relation to Dr. Studebaker's point about original sin, and that is not only do we realize that the world of our experience is not the way it's supposed to be, also... We know that somehow it's our fault and none of us is excused from responsibility for it. Um, as far as this, the, 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 the point that, that uh, Dr. Radner was making about uh, he, he, he doesn't care whether people are uh, prepared or open to evolution or not or something like that. I, I don't want to put words in his mouth. That's sort of the way it came out to me. The only thing I would say about that is there is a question about whether Christians are prepared to... to um, to respect the autonomy of, of nature and the autonomy of other kinds of inquiry, of scientific inquiry, and so on and so forth. And that, it seems to me, is a significant question. And it, in the United States, at least, it's a significant cultural problem as well that's really screwing up Christians' ability to, to have the kind of influence that they ought to have on the shape of our institutions and, and so on and so forth. I share Dr. Radner's uh, frustration that this is even an issue that we have to have a conference about, so it's sort of missing the point. But, but what uh, Dr. Wilkins says is the fact is that there are a lot of Christians, evangelical Christians, both in the States and Canada. I know of a faculty member at a, uh, 
a Christian institution in Canada that I think this this last year did not receive a renewed contract because of an issue of their understanding of Adam and Eve, were they historical people? So it's a it's an issue that characterizes North American conservative <coughs> evangelicalism. And it also, I think the point about the cultural influence of it is very important. I, I, uh, I remember a number of years ago, we had to have a nanny, not because we're, you know, wealthy or anything, but because of our work situations. We were, at, both of us were out of the house. At any rate, I was at home, came home, and, and the nanny was getting ready to leave, and she, she, she was talking about my son, who was reading or talking about science or watching something, you know, the cosmos or something on the History Channel. And, and she said, well, you've got to be careful about teaching him the big lie, evolution. And I, and I told her, I said, don't you poison his mind with those thoughts. He has a natural interest in the sciences and a curiosity, and I do not want them shut down because you have this fanatical fear that of evolution. And that's the, that, that's the cultural issue. That uh, Are evangelicals engaging or not engaging in certain fields of inquiry, science or what have you, because of this sort of cultural bias we have against science? So I noticed that uh, the issue that keeps coming up, and Professor McKinney's talking, each one of the panelists, but in different ways, sort of dancing around, um, everyone keeps coming back to a theological notion of what human nature is. Um, but so far, other than the um, uh, tantalizing remark that Dr. Wilkins left about uh, human nature being an imminent principle of motion and rest, um, there haven't really been put on the table any proposals for what exactly either an evangelical or a Catholic notion of human nature would be. And so m my question's for Dr. Radner, um, because in your talk you made, I thought, um, a very interesting remark that you felt like when a evangelical or a Catholic comes to say what is human nature or what is a human, that um, whether X or Y, that it would be affected or shaped by the answer that they have to the church is X or the church is Y. But then toward the end of your paper, you, you sort of then it seemed to me shifted and suggested that, well, there'd probably be a shared theological meaning about human nature, and the real question was going to be, how will the effect of catechesis and the social theological formation of people in the pews be as they go out to engage the world? And so I just wonder um, if you'd be prepared to share um, on the middle remark, you know, what, ex what exactly do you think um, would be the theological notion of human nature that should be informing us as we go forward, either from an evangelical or the Catholic perspective, um, so that, you know, we, we can, um, as the conversation goes forward today, um, we have some stuff on the table about, well, okay, if we are going to be forming people, what will be the theological notion of uh, the human nature that we're going to be going forward with? Thanks. That's a, a fair question, an important one. Um, I guess, from my point of view, for instance, O'Donovan and Porter were offered as, as test cases to, to think through, and it struck me that while I'm probably somebody who, uh, what's the right word, resonates or something, more with O'Donovan than Porter, um, and I'm a, I'm a sort of a more conservative Anglican than I am a Roman Catholic, it doesn't really matter to me, those two. I mean, both are good, 
both both you make a good argument on those terms and so on you are doing your job as a Christian theologian in this time. And, and I'm not saying that there are no differences that should be taken seriously and weighed and so on, but it strikes me the differences between Porter and O'Donovan are far less and far less important than the differences and the conclusions, which may be more or less roomy compared to some of these moral questions that have come up uh, that were raised about biotechnological change and so on. The difference between them are far less uh, than the common bases they both lay about what a human being is as a creature of God in the face of a society that doesn't, uh, and, and, and not just a society, a set of habits of, of life and ordering that simply don't know what to make of any of that. Um, now, I suppose one could say, wouldn't it be nice if they both had, everybody had exactly the same views about, uh, you know, are we going to put our emphasis on Genesis and understanding it in a certain way? Are we going to put our emphasis on an Aristotelianly um, adapted vision? Of, and I suppose it's also possible that arguments about that are distracting, I would say. I mean, I certainly have found that to be the case amongst Roman Catholics and Protestants over issues right now with respect to uh, marriage and family. I think that uh, the, the, the uh, insistences that one uh, uh, approach these questions on the basis of some particular metaphysical construct as opposed to a certain scriptural construct, uh, which I see even here at TST come up amongst uh, debates and discussions, I think those are interesting but ultimately distracting uh, in the face of the sorts of larger challenges about being a creature of God. Uh, and having that uh, move in the direction of the sorts of things, uh, you know, you ended with the question of, of, of following the cross and how that has to do with, what does that have to do with the goods of being a human being created by God? To me, those are the, those are the deeper questions and the deeper places where Catholic and evangelical surely have common ground. And that common ground, I think, is recognized by most, is recognized by the society as a whole, which can lump all of us together in one big bin of, of uh, either superstition or ignorance or conservative um, uh, reaction and so on and so forth. Um, uh, anyway, I, I, don't, I didn't answer your question about what is human nature, but I don't actually, first of all, personally, I'm not sure I, I, that category is all that helpful to me. Um, we've already had a whole bunch of different things. Imago Dei, is that the same thing as human nature? The human soul, is that the same thing as human nature? Um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The breath. Uh, um, I think it's a big place term for a lot of elements that the Christian gospel has uh, laid out as being central to, to the fact that we are creatures of God. Um, but uh, in and of itself, I, I, I personally don't think it's the most important category to build upon. I think there are other categories, uh, other things to be said in terms of the Gospels and so on that are, but uh, I mean, going back to, uh, I'll stop. I, I, I'm blabbing, I realize. Um, it, it is so bizarre to me to think that there are so many people in our society, including scientists, some scientists, by no means all scientists, who in the face of being alive are not confronted by something so overwhelmingly mysterious 
and, uh, uh, and so on, about actually being alive and being a creature, that, um, that the questions that, in this case, Christians raise do not seem at least plausible. Um, and the fact that it, they're not even plausible for so many people is a sign of a deeply desiccated and depleted social polity. Um, and to me, that's the big question. How did we get to that place? where raising the quest, the fundamental question of the mystery of human life is viewed as, as incomprehensible and bizarre and off-limits even. Um, it, it's, it just boggles the mind that that could have happened in the space of 15, 30 years, whatever it's been. Um, uh, yeah. Steve, uh, go ahead for the last question. Okay, I'll try and make it brief. Um, the, the author of the definitive work on, uh, the definitive story, I should say, of creation and the fall, John Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost, was himself, as you probably know, not an orthodox Trinitarian individual, largely because of the science of his time. He could not conceive that God could be in two places at the same time. This is not a problem that bothers us in the 20th, 21st centuries, and in partly because of a fellow named Einstein, um, who also, uh, Milton's other issue was that the universe couldn't be created out of nothing, because something can't come out of nothing. That was the classical understanding. We don't have a problem with that either, something called the Big Bang. Uh, somewhere along the line, scientists, and to your point, Professor Radner, uh, somewhere along the line, scientists stopped thinking about their work as an unraveling the mysteries of God's creation and started thinking what I would term the Darwinian fallacy, which is because I understand how life is made, therefore there couldn't have been a maker. Do any of your gentlemen have a comment on how that started, why that started, why we're even having this conversation in the context of that sort of general world understanding? Thank you. Um, I have my own theories, but they're only theories. Um, one of the main planks of which is are, are some of the changes that precisely that have taken place in, if you will, the traits of human survival over the last hundred plus years, and that has to do with uh, the, the so-called huge, uh, the, the great health transition. Uh, in which uh, our lifespans have doubled, uh, as we've heard about, uh, and which lots of other things have happened in the face of death and mortality, which has altered the kinds of daily, quotidian demands upon our um, faculties of understanding uh, that much of the world's human experience in the past has been subjected to. Um, now that's just one element, but uh, going on longer, so we think we'll go on forever. Well, we don't. We don't face death for the most part. We all die. That's obvious. But uh, uh, we don't actually live in a dying world. Um, in in places like North America and so on, developed societies, uh, we don't. I mean, the question of mortality is a huge one. I think, and uh, the people have brought up. I think it's a actually absolutely central one. 
Um, I think if one were to talk about human nature, by the way, one of the things that one have to say is one dies. That is actually part of it. And there's a debate about whether we were immortal and so on, and the tradition hasn't, in, in our making, hasn't actually been definitive about that. But I, uh, anyway, uh, leave that. I, th I would go on the side that we've always been mortal, and that's, that's what it means to be a creature. But I think that that issue of mortality as a fundamental aspect of human existence is something that uh, has receded. And in receding, I think the way we do our work, which includes scientific work, has fundamentally, uh, its contours have changed. Um, that's just one. I'm not, I'm, that's not an explain it all. It's one aspect, but I think it's, a, it's an actual thing one can point to and uh, historically. Uh, and I think one can, one can in fact, uh, correlate certain changes uh, uh, over the last hundred years with the way people ask questions and talk about themselves on that basis. Anybody else want to try? I just have one comment that I know Dr. Radner's a little uh, I'm concerned about defining the human nature, but I think one thing that we can take home today that, that at least we've defined the nature of the Neanderthal. And if anybody is still in doubt, we just need to go visit an undergraduate class. <laughs> I just want to say uh, thank you very much to our three panelists. I found this a very rich and rewarding discussion. Thank you very much. Uh, so lunch, lunch is going to be served next door uh, very presently in a few minutes. Um, we're going to gather back here at 2 o'clock. Um, if you could please be prompt for 2 o'clock. So you have some time for lunch, maybe go and catch up on email and so forth. This, so if we can, if we can um, uh, get back at 2, it means that we finish on time just shortly after 5 p.m., which is, I think, probably what we all want to do. So, uh, so we'll continue then at 2 o'clock. Thank you. Just a, uh, a minor logistical uh, note. The afternoon sun is slanting in here, and we'll circle around a little bit. So for those of you who find yourself in the sun uh, and not being able to see anything but the sun, uh, feel free to move uh, as you see fit. Um, so just before we get into our next panel discussion, we'll begin in a, in a few uh, moments, and that panel will be... Um, devoted to the somewhat more general question, how, th how should theologians and pastors speak about evolution and human nature? We have four panelists uh, lined up uh, for this afternoon's panel. And then following that, we will have a short break, and then we will be wrapping up with our final lecture. But the lecture itself uh, will be followed by two responses um, um, later this afternoon, uh, one from a Reformed theologian, the other uh, a Catholic theologian. Um, so that is the lineup for uh, the next two or three hours. I uh, just wanted to spend a few minutes just uh, informing you briefly of some of the background uh, causes, if you will, for this symposium this, uh, today. Uh, this is one of four planned symposia that uh, have has taken place. We've had one uh, so far, which was held at Crandall University in New Brunswick, uh, and there's going to be two more symposia, uh, the next one of which will take place in Edmonton at King's University, 
an evangelical Protestant and undergraduate institution in Edmonton. Uh, all four symposia, while having distinct features and uh, audiences in mind, uh, and obviously distinct venues, uh, are all uh, I'll, uh, organized under the umbrella of my particular research grant, which is funded by the BioLogos Foundation. Um, let me just say uh, a brief word about the foundation, in case uh, for those of you who are not familiar with it, there is a, a brochure that you may have picked up on your way in earlier this morning. Uh, more uh, importantly, perhaps, is the BioLogos website. And I'm particularly, I, I, I've brought the, the website up onto the screen in front of you, even though, of course, the text will not be uh, legible from where most of you are sitting. The BioLogos website is a very um, thorough, very comprehensive website. Lots of uh, questions. There's a daily resource. There's a, a blog. There are tons of short articles including, and probably BioLogos' website is most well-known for this, a series of introductory, uh, very concise um, uh, uh, articles on the theory of evolution written by Dennis Venema, who is a biologist at Trinity Western University just outside Vancouver, uh, which, as most of you probably know, perhaps, know is an evangelical, uh, well, one of Canada's uh, most well-known university, uh, evangelical universities. So the BioLogos website I highly commend to you, especially for those of you who are faculty or pastors. It's a great place for students who are grappling with some of the questions that we've been speaking about already today. It's a great place for them to go as a sort of a, an introductory uh, portal uh, into some of these uh, into some of these questions. The BioLogos Foundation itself has sponsored, uh, in addition to uh, providing resources of the kind I've just been speaking, the BioLogos Foundation has sponsored the Evangel uh, pardon me the Evolution and Christian Faith Program, uh, and this is a program from which I derived my own grant, uh, and I am one of. Uh, uh, gosh, I don't know, maybe uh, 70 or 80 grantees uh, around the world, uh, maybe somewhat fewer than that. In any case, the Evolution and Christian Faith Program as a whole is, uh, orient is oriented to both uh, academic uh, institutions and the needs of uh, academics, academic scientists, philosophers, and theologians. But, and this is what distinguishes uh, this program from other grant granting agencies or granting programs, the Evolution and Christian Faith Program is also uh, oriented to the needs of the church. Um, and particularly uh, in mind here is the, is the evangelical church, and not just that of the United States, but uh, for obvious reasons, the, uh, the presence of American academics and pastors in BioLogos is, is uh, prominent. BioLogos, the foundation itself... Uh, was initiated by Dr. Francis Collins, who is currently the head of the NIH in the United States, the National Institutes of Health. He was, his name, uh, his name is recognized by many because of his lead role in the Human Genome Project, which wrapped up, uh, what, 10 years ago or so. And he himself has identified as an evangelical Christian. He wrote a very, very best-selling uh, book, as an evangelical scientist called The Language of God. Uh, I think that was the title, very, something very close to it. In any case, so I commend BioLogos and its uh, many resources uh, to you. 
Uh, just a word about uh, my own project then. Um, my own project has in mind these four symposia, and uh, one of the, uh, apart from the outreach to the various um, colleges and institutions, universities uh, that sponsor or host these symposia, um, is uh, we, uh, we anticipate some, some kind of edited volume to emerge uh, from various papers that uh, are presented at the uh, four symposia. So the one at Crandall last spring, this one here, the one in Edmonton next week, and the fourth yet to be decided perhaps or probably in Vancouver uh, later this year. And then the other main product of uh, my own grant is a, uh, a monograph, a, a book that I have begun to write, the tentative title of which is Creaturehood, Ascendant, Sin, and Science in Theological Anthropology. Uh, I write, I think, uh, as, a, as a Catholic who is interested in questions of theological anthropology, but in ways that uh, resemble some of the concerns or priorities of evangelicals, uh, hence the, the hybrid nature of, of my own research program. So uh, some of the elements that will feature in, in, my, in my book uh, are the biblical hermeneutic provided by Augustine, uh, namely the balancing of the, the literal with the metaphorical, not the replacement of one with the other, uh, but the, the, uh, uh, the closely reasoned, or reasoned anyway, uh, balance of the two ways, uh, the two approaches to the biblical text. In Augustine's thinking, Augustine's, of course, his own uh, extensive anthropological um, reflections in the Confessions and, and elsewhere in his work. Um, a focus of my book will be on the notion of sin, which I want to say is related to a, a wider notion of, of wrongdoing. And, uh, and, and for that reason, it is, uh, can be related to the Catholic tradition of natural law uh, morality. And I will, I will bring that in, hopefully, strategically into my works. I say strategically. There are many philosophers who work with the natural law tradition, not just Catholics. And one of the, uh, one of the thinkers I, I think needs uh, to be engaged a little bit more is that the uh, secular philosopher, uh, secular, I believe he's a secular and a Jewish philosopher, Larry Arnhart. Uh, and his short volume, very readable, uh, volume on, on the subject of uh, evolution and natural law is entitled uh, Conservative Darwinism. Um, and it's actually conservative as a bit of a mis misnomer. It's a kind of a classical liberal approach to natural law theory, but taking into account evolution uh, as well. So in any, in, uh, in any case, that's, those are some of the elements of the book that I'm, uh, I'm currently uh, pulling together. And some of you have asked uh, sort of where, you know, what, what's the whence of all of this? Well, uh, some of that uh, is coming together in that particular book volume. So um, I think I'll leave it at, at that. So that's just by way of giving you some insight as to some of the, the genesis of today's, uh, today's uh, event. A symposium. I will now ask the four panelists to make their way up to the table up front, and uh, I'm going to just turn off the screen. Bear with us for a little, uh, 30 seconds or a minute, and then we'll, we'll begin uh, the panel uh, discussion. Okay. 
Good. All right. So, as I uh, said earlier, this, uh, this particular panel will deal with the somewhat broader question of how should theologians and pastors speak about evolution and human nature. And uh, with us this afternoon are uh, four persons. Um, I'm going to introduce them now so that we can just simply have a, a fluid uh, transfer of one to the other. Um, beginning with uh, Dr. Joseph Mangina, Mangina, Mangina. Uh, followed by uh, Xiao Chong, Dr. Colleen Shantz, and Dr. Paul Ladouceur. So, uh, Dr. Mangina is Professor of Systematic Theology here at Wycliffe College. Uh, as you see from the bio uh, in the brochure that you have with you, uh, he has interests in the thought of Karl Barth and the book of uh, Revelation. He has also served on the Anglican Roman Catholic Dialogue uh, Commission. Uh, Xiao Chong is a Christian Reform campus chaplain serving at uh, York University in the, the north end of the city here. And Chong has a number of articles published on, uh, in Christian popular publications, and his website is there in the brochure for you to uh, look at. Uh, Dr. Colleen Shantz, and due, unfortunately, to a very uh, strange technical mishap, uh, unfortunately, Dr. Shantz's bio is missing from the brochure. Um, let me give you some specifics about uh, Dr. Shantz. Um, she is a New Testament scholar. She is associate professor of the New Testament here at the Toronto School of Theology uh, at, at the University of St. Michael's College. She specializes in religious experience in early Christianity and the formation of the earliest assemblies of Christ followers in Greco-Roman cities. Um, uh, I want to be a little bit more specific here and, and let you know about this because it's not in the uh, brochure. Professor Shantz's work in cognitive science is of particular relevance to the day's theme. Her book, Paul in Ecstasy, draws on this approach as does her current research on consciousness and insight in Paul's letters. And she has served on the executive committee of the International Association for the Cognitive Science of Religion. So that's uh, Dr. Chance's background. And Paul, Dr. Paul Ladouceur, we've stressed today um, the dialogue or the contributions of Catholics and evangelicals. I'm really pleased to have uh, Paul Ladouceur with us, who is an Orthodox theologian and writer living in uh, Quebec, La Belle Province, avec moi. Um, he teaches in the Orthodox theology programs of the Université de Sherbrooke, as well as uh, here at Trinity College at the University of uh, Toronto. So we'll proceed in the order of uh, the introductions as uh, I've just made them. So first we begin uh, with Dr. Angina. Thank you very much, Paul, and it's great honor and pleasure to be here. Um, I feel obliged to make the disclaimer that you've heard more than once already today that I'm not an expert in these matters. I'm a mere dogmatic theologian. What do I know about evolution and so on? But I can't really get away with that because we dogmatic theologians are the last Renaissance men and women, the last generalists. God is the formal object of theology, but then we can talk about anything we want as it relates to God. So, so here goes. <clears throat> Among the elites of European academic theology in the 19th century, 
The German and the English both underwent crises as Christian faith was subjected to the challenges of modernity. Both were worried, but they worried about different things. The Germans worried about the reliability of the Gospels, belief in miracles, whether the tomb was empty on Easter morning. In short, they worried about the historical Jesus. Whereas the English worried about the fossil record, about rocks. The typical narrative of a Victorian loss of faith, after all, is a Church of England cleric who starts wondering about the age of the earth and either does or does not tell this to his congregation. The Germans did not worry over much about the fossil record because they had Kant to tell them that religion and morality were qualitatively different from empirical science. Science belongs to theoretical reason, religion to practical reason. The English, in turn, didn't worry about the higher criticism because they thought this was a newfangled German invention and they wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, that eventually changed. These are gross generalizations, but there is a rough truth in them. If you put it in these 19th century terms, I am on the side of the Germans. The typical evangelical, that is Anglo-American evangelical concern, concerns for the reliability of Genesis, the debate between science, religion, evolution, and so on, these have never been my concerns. It has always been pretty obvious to me that the mere fact of cosmological or biological evolution is as such no challenge to Christianity, because Christianity is not mainly about either cosmology or biology. In 1965, a famous theology professor was asked by his niece, who was 11 or 12 at the time, how she could reconcile what she'd heard from her teacher in school concerning human origins and what she'd learned in Sunday school. The theologian wrote to his niece, has no one explained to you in your seminar that one can as little compare the biblical creation story and a scientific theory like that of evolution as one can compare, shall we say, an organ and a vacuum cleaner, that there can be as little question of harmony between them as of contradiction. The creation story, the author goes on, is a witness to the beginning or becoming of all reality distinct from God. In the light of God's later acts and words relating to his people Israel, naturally in the form of a saga or poem. The theory of evolution is an attempt to explain the same reality, the same reality in its inner nexus, naturally in the form of a scientific hypothesis. The creation story deals only with the becoming of all things, and therefore with the revelation of God, which is inaccessible to science as such. The theory of evolution deals with what has become as it appears to human observation and research, and as it invites human interpretation. Thus, one's attitude to the creation story and the theory of evolution can take the form of an either-or only if one shuts oneself off completely from either faith in God's revelation or from the mind or opportunity for scientific understanding. So, tell the teacher concerned that she should distinguish what is to be distinguished and not shut, shut herself off completely from either side. The theologian in question, of course, was Karl Barth. Now, Barth's views on these matters